With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sam, don't you know who I am? Stop me, don't you know who I am? I'm one of the Oceanic Six! I'm one of the Oceanic Six! Lost is over, but we have to go back down the hatch. It's the Lost Rewatch Podcast here on Posher Recaps Season 4. We're finally here. Oh my god. Josh Wiggler here, joined by Mike Bloom. Hi, Mike. Hi, Josh. Big Mike. Big Mike Bloom. Oh, yeah. Let me all, let me talk about how hot Anna Lucia is. Oh, weird. Very strange. Um. Oh my god, Mike. It begins. So it begins. The beginning of the end. And it ends as well, in a manner of speaking. Yes. The beginning of the end. Although it's not the beginning of the end. The episode, the end. Uh, The beginning of the end is a really beautiful montage uh, that just like, you know, one last montage to to get you situated with all your characters from Oceanic 815. But that's many moons from now, Mike. Today, we're discussing the beginning of the end. It's a totally different thing. This is really the who's on first of Lost, isn't yes. it? Yes. <laughs> um, I'm so excited to be here. We took our time. We gave ourselves some time off to to focus on those missing pieces. Yeah, you could say, in a manner of speaking, we went off to get firewood. Yes. You know, we were w- missing for a long time, but now we're back, and we have a much longer lifespan than Naomi at this moment. Um, I mean, Naomi's lifespan, very impressive, I have to say. I uh, mean, listen, uh, this is coming off of Mikhail, so it's not as impressive, but still fairly impressive. She's got a lot of grit for someone who got a literal knife in the back. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I think uh, there's some very impressive stuff coming from Naomi this week. So we'll we'll talk about that as we go deeper into the episode. But I I forgot how much I loved this episode. I forgot how much I loved the way that season four just kind of uh, for for I was going to say for a lack of a better phrase, but I actually think it's apt cannonballs into the middle of the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we really like. Uh, I feel like this episode wastes nothing. I think that this this episode really makes the most out of every moment. Yeah, well, I think it's a very interesting episode because more so than I think any season premiere, this is almost like serving directly as the bridge between the end of season three and the rest of season four. Uh, Because I I think that, you know, of the season premieres we've experienced up to this point, it really was more so like a chapter beginning than a true transition moment like this is. But it works on so many levels because I would say not only bridges season three into season four, but it also bridges the first book of Lost into the second book of Lost to keep using that metaphor because something that I had forgotten is not only I agree how much fun, how good this episode is and how much specifically the second half of the episode is just so seismic, but it actually sets up a lot of stuff for the complete end game of the show. 
not yeah. even of the season. There is so much. Give us some examples of that. I'd love, like, just let's, let's, let's plant some flags before we yeah. even get into the recap. So this is a very different side of Hurley in many ways. And we've talked throughout about how episodes like Everybody Hates Hugo and even, you know, Left Behind with the Sawyer stuff sort of sets up this idea of Hurley possibly becoming the heir apparent of the island. I feel like we see an entirely new side of Hurley on the island this episode that shows he does indeed have those leadership qualities. You know, like this is the type of Hurley that will chuck a walkie-talkie into the ocean that knows that being a leader involves being firm sometimes, that while he does have a lot of appeal through sort of uh, the soft pitch and going through things the Hurley way, I think he has hardened a bit in part to Charlie's death as to, you know, what living on the island entails. But I know that at the time... Hurley talking to ghosts was a big WTF, but it plays so much better for me on a rewatch, knowing how essential the afterlife is to the end game of Lost. You know, we we had sort of talked about the whispers up to this point, and obviously we have we did our own sort of surmising about the smoke monster. But in canon, in the show up to this point, there really was not a lot of talk of like. Okay, you know, these characters are dead, but are they really? And I think having Hurley talk to ghosts is not only a big change in the character that's going to set up a lot of stuff moving forward, but also a big signal from the show about, hey, you may want to pay attention to this idea of, like, when we die, what happens? Because it's going to be a big, big thing that's involved in the final twist in our series. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of thoughts about this, too, because I've, I've definitely, you know, and I've, I've talked about this on the podcast a couple of times, but it's been a minute since it's come up because we haven't really heard the whispers in a, in a second. Um, the idea of the whispers being the ones who can't move on and like how that flies in the face of uh, what we used to think about them being associated with the others. But what mm-hmm. if it doesn't? What if they're part and parcel with one another? What if there's some way in which they are connected? And knowing that Hurley is going to end this show as the new man in charge, that he is suddenly now in this moment of uh, really like starting to like really step forward into his destiny as of this episode, really making some big yep. leadership, leadership decisions. You know, one says, could say that Locke is the leader of one of those groups. But I think the, the reality is actually that Hurley, uh, is the one that convinces people to go with Locke. Uh, people aren't following John Locke. They're following Hurley. If Hurley is not the one who steps forward in that big scene, I agree that, you know, look, I think it's not exactly a 50-50 split between the two groups, but I do not think at least as many people end up joining Locke as they would if Hurley didn't step up. Because a lot of people trust Hurley up to this point, especially amongst the Gawkers. I think, obviously, we sort of disregard the Gawkers, with the exception of the delightful uh, romps we have as Billy and Rodney. But I do think that, especially more so than Jack and Locke, it seems like Hurley has been more so a welcome presence around camp of the past few seasons. And so I do think his role in the entire 815 of things is a bit understated. And that's another reason why this episode is so interesting and also a really interesting choice. You know, this is the first the the first uh, premiere to not really be focused around Jack. Like yeah. we get a couple of Jack flash forward scenes and we do get a couple of things involving Jack in the present timeline. But this is really focused around Hurley. And again, it is staring us right in the face in hindsight, saying, yeah, this is the guy you kind of need to pay attention to. He is no longer good, fun-time Hurley supporting character for the laughs. This is someone who is going to be essential to the endgame of Lost. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that there's sort of a, an element of a passing of the torch here. Uh, and to that point of 
Hurley stepping into this leadership role and the connection with the others and the connection with the whispers and the connections with ghosts later on. Like, I want to talk about that stuff when we get to the Jacob's cabin scene, because I think like, mm-hmm. um, it is, it is like the, it, it's, it strikes me that like the ghosts coming to Hurley are, are kind of, it could be interpreted as like really the, the ghosts of the island need you. Uh, yeah. and, and there's a strong reason why he is like getting, um, you know, kind of like flirted with by the powers that be. Ooh. And I think we, we want to talk about like why, uh, that, that Jacob's cabin scene later on. Uh, and is that, is that, uh, Jacob and his cabin? Is that the smoke monsters? It's something else. I think that there's a lot of fun ways to dissect that. This is an episode that I think is definitely richer, uh, for, um, I, I think it's it's just it's it's more nourishing for the the series having been completed at this yes, point completely and that, and that, I think we say that about nearly every Hurley episode right yeah like that seems to be a commonality that I think now that we know Hurley's entire story we can now look back on those Hurley episodes and not just think about them as larks but sort of building the man who will become king yeah and I, we've said that about so many times at this point and the beginning of the end is no different. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, before we move forward, I think it's important that we take a moment to address um, the passing of someone in the lost community. It's possible that you have not heard this news. The news dropped shortly after actually Mike and I mm-hmm. finished recording um, uh, and scheduling our last podcast. So we we just missed being able to comment on it. Um, right away, but I, I want to make sure that we talk about it now because this is a character we're going to see a lot of in in season four, including uh, this very episode, including this very episode with a great moment in this episode, uh, and someone who will will see a lot throughout season four, someone who we will lose in season four, and someone we won't see again, at least as played by this actress until season six after season four. Um, sadly, uh, Mira Furlan, who plays Danielle Rousseau, uh, passed away last week. Uh, mm-hmm. The news was announced. Um, by J. Michael Straczynski, uh, who is her collaborator on Babylon 5, which is a show that I haven't seen. Uh, it's the same. Uh, I know that she's iconic from that show, that people uh, really, really loved her on that show, the people who were really hooked into Babylon 5. And of course, Danielle Rousseau has been a really important character for me for, for many, many years and uh, would not have been that way without the incredible work of Mira Furlan. So there's been a lot of really wonderful, heartfelt tributes to, uh, to, to her, uh, in, in light of this really sad news. I wanted to, uh, actually turn it to Steve Kerrigan, uh, one of the patrons of Post Show Recaps who wrote a really beautiful tribute, uh, to Mira Furlan. This is what Steve wrote. Uh, Steve wrote, what sad news to learn the passing of Mira Furlan. In reading various tributes today, I was surprised to see that Danielle Rousseau appears in only 20 of Lost's 121 episodes. How could that be true, I thought? For being on the show relatively little, the character had a huge impact, and it's all thanks to Furlan's powerful and unforgettable performance. Coming into Lost back in 2004, I was already a huge fan of hers from her work as Delenn on Babylon 5. Apologies if I am mispronouncing. Um, Babylon 5 was an underrated show that was ahead of its time, a hidden gem of 1990s TV, and she was one of the best parts of it. They didn't have the biggest budget, and the makeup effects could be a bit silly, especially by today's standards. But because of this, the show relied more on the performances of its actors, in particular from the alien characters, like Delent. Uh, drawing from her own life experience, having lived through civil war in her home country of Yugoslavia, Furlan brought a wisdom and ferocity to that character that made her absolutely the beating heart of the show. Rest in peace. Um, and J. Michael Straczynski, who is the writer and executive producer of Babylon 5, 
uh, I think underscores uh, a lot of what Steve just wrote about. This was from JMS, who said, When Mira Furlan came to audition for Babylon 5, her home country of Yugoslavia was in turmoil and shattered into two separate countries. During our first meeting, we spoke about her work and her life. And I learned that she had been part of a touring theater group that continued to cross borders of the disintegrating country despite receiving death threats from both sides in the Civil War. I expressed my admiration for her courage, and she shrugged and waved it off. What's the worst that could have happened? Yes, they could have killed me. So what? Art should have no borders. So that is the way that Mira Furlan lived her right, uh, her life. And, um, I, I don't know a ton of her work. I really know her as Danielle Rousseau, Mike, mm-hmm. but I will say that I think that, that ferocity, that passion, that commitment really shines through in the character in, in some of the ways that we've been really jokey about, like the intensity of moments of like, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, there is an intensity to her. Um, that I think just like vibrates, uh, every time she's on screen. So it's, it's really, it's really, really sad. I was really upset to read the news. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, I am grateful that we, we have, uh, you know, a good chunk of episodes here to really appreciate her work and her performance. Um, one more time here as we embark on season four. It's upsetting for many reasons, you know. She was 65 when she passed, which still, you know, even though she has a storied career, to your point, does seem way too young, far too young. This is also, I believe, really like one of the first times that a, you know, it's it's tough to call her like a main lost character, even though to Steve's point, she's such a, a big part of the show itself. But like this, the lost cast has been extremely lucky in that, you know, you know there really has not been a lot of misfortune uh, in terms of major deaths of a lot of these actors. And is, this does feel like something significant to have one of the the big stars of the show end up passing especially again so soon i'll sort of you know uh ape my own comments about danielle Rousseau when we first met her in solitary specifically on this rewatch uh danielle Rousseau and mira Ferland's performance echoed so differently to me than beforehand because i think to your point Danielle Rousseau had sort of been memefied, I think, in the lost community as, as Hurley would put it, you know, crazy French chick, right? Like that's sort of the short change people would use that she was sort of like, you know, a loon with the big frizzy hair who was like sort of a badass who lived out on the island after suffering this tragedy. And I think from my own perspective, having become a parent and also having, you know, uh, reconciled with my own perennial mental health struggle, I gained so much more watching this character back from this rewatch as someone who is not just the crazy French chick, but someone who is just like continually broken and trying to mend themselves using the resources that they are given. And of course, it's going to be a bit in shambles. You know, it's a vase held precipitously together by band-aids and a little bit of Elmer's glue that could break apart at any moment, but you admire the efforts to do so. And I think the dimensions and the depth with which she was able to bring to this character, you know, I think in another world, if this is played by a less adept actress, Danielle Rousseau does not become a part of four seasons of Lost. Uh, And and I think that it could have been very easily, much like Michael Emerson with Ben, had been like, she appears in Solitary, appears in season one, and then, you know, doesn't end up appearing for the rest of the series. But this is the case, I think, where an actor Actress and her performance just leapt off the screen immediately. Solitary is still one of my favorite episodes, in part because of what Mira Furlan just brings immediately. She comes with a fully realized character, which is tough to say for the first season of a show. Yeah. And so I, I give her all the commendations. It's admittedly going to be a little tough watching 
season four for the next little bit, knowing that, you know, we have to kind of reconcile what we're watching on screen with what's happening in real life. But that being said, there there's a bit of a smile as I say that, because I am looking forward to, you know, seeing this character make, quote unquote, one last round. You say she appears in season six, but this really is sort of the end of Danielle Rousseau as played by Mira Furlan. And even though it is the end of Mira Furlan in real life as well, I am very happy to be able to really get in depth into not only this character, but a performance that I think is so, so key to the show that we love so much. Yeah, 100%. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it because I think, uh, she's, she's terrific in this, in this season. She gets to have some time with Alex. Um, I think that there will be joy here. Of course, there will also be sudden tragedy, uh, that we'll, that we'll get to in a few episodes from now. So we'll take the good, we'll take the bad, something, something facts of life. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you were right I, there. There's just two more lines. Josh. I know. You yada, uh, yada, past the best part. I did. I did. Uh, but I, I, I really love this performance. I'm, I'm so sad about, about her loss. Uh, our heart goes out to her family and everyone who's feeling this, including especially the, the lost community and, and just, uh, her fans, every, everybody who's really feeling this. It's just a, it's a, it's a sad time to, it's, no time is a good time to lose somebody that you care about, but this is, it's a tough time to, 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 to weather something like this. So we just want, we wanted to talk about it at, at the top, uh, mm-hmm. before, before we, uh, really drove for there's no great segue mike uh into into no, talking I, I think we should come bursting into our episode description like a camaro through a pile of papayas well you know it, it is interesting that's that's how lost begins book two right season four uh directed uh the beginning of the end directed by jack bender co-written by lindelof and cuse uh it is a hurly flashback and well, it, well uh, sort of flash forward technically flash forward a hurly flash forward yeah it's our second flash forward uh, it is, uh, Hurley's fifth centric episode. Usually a Hurley episode doesn't show up until like mid season. Uh, you know, at least in season one, it took a long time to get to numbers. We get one in, in episode four in season two. And then again with Dave a little later on, but for season three, it takes about mid season to get to Trisha Tanaka here right out the, right out the gate where we're there with Hurley. And yeah, he's driving through. Mangoes and the, you know, the episode is trying to like sell you on you're on the island, but then I think it's like visually it's really selling this idea to me, Mike, that like we are, uh, we're leaving, <laughs> you know, like we're moving into a place where like the island and the island, the island aesthetic and everything it represents is always going to be important. But what comes after the mangoes is just as important. Well, I love it because it is such a reverse of the previous two premieres, right? Which both start on such iconic notes where it opens on this mysterious scene where you think you're off island, but nope, turns out that you are on the island. This is the exact opposite, where we think we're on the island. And then here comes Hurley driving through this poor fruit stand in a, a true action movie trope to show, oh, no, 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 no. We're still subverting your expectations. Remember how how we ended season three and i know that this scene had a big impact in many ways because this is as was played in the intro clip the first mention of the oceanic six this is the reveal that hurley makes it off the island i do remember that uh you know again to talk about what we talked about last time i was watching season four alongside a group of friends that i was building at the time and i remember there was a big reaction to hurley being the one to step out of the car though i think in retrospect when you see the car you're like yeah that's hurley 
Like, we select yeah. Richard Tanaka. We know it's the Camaro. Why should we be surprised that Hurley's the one stepping out here? Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, the whole scene is, like, very tense. And they, uh, you know, they, they waste no time letting you know, I think, that this is the future, right? Like, you can you can tell because... Uh, well, actually, I don't know. I mean, it's... it's I, I would love to know what what's your take. Like, do you think that the show is trying to sell us on once again? This is a Jack opener uh, because mm. like Jack is there in the in the you know in his apartment. He's watching the news. He's okay. pouring himself a little screwdriver. Okay, can just we to also touch. mention? Uh, you know, I love the Lost Sound team, but there was one thing that really stuck out to me when Jack clicks on the remote. It is the sound of a mouse clicking, which is so odd to me why they decided to use that particular piece of Foley. Uh, I guess they just thought, like, a click is a click, but that really stuck out to me. A click is a click, of course. Uh, you see coins, you gotta click. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it, it's such an interesting thing, because you could say, yeah, on one hand, like, well, of course this is a flash forward because Jack is seeing Hurley on the thing, but we've seen, you know, look back at Ooh in translation when Hurley is on the TV and the guy that Jen Farkas is... It, it happens, you know, it could have just been a crossover. Jack doesn't necessarily know it's Hurley. It could have just been like, look at this lottery winner. I think it's not until he says Oceanic 6 that you really realize that this is a flash forward. Also very interesting is, you know, we got sort of a glimpse of this in Through the Looking Glass, but I feel like that was more focused on uh, Jack's painkiller addiction yeah. and less so on his alcoholism. And now we start to really see, I think, Jack falling down that hole and that connection to Christian. As yeah. well, considering that up to this point, you know, we really hadn't uh, explored that side of Jack, more so of Christian. But I think, obviously, that relationship is still complicated. It's going to get even more so complicated now that, quote unquote, Christian Shepard's going to show up on the island uh, as soon as, you know, the last episode of Missing Pieces. But I think Jack fixing himself a nice midday screwdriver you is know, really, yeah. really key. I well, I think it's it's funny to me because I I do think, and maybe I'm connecting with it more watching it as a sober person. Uh, that I I I all along the way there there's a lot throughout Lost that suggests Jack's alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wh- wildly, widely throughout the show. Uh, it, wh- whether it's you know his very first flashback appearance, which is him on the on the plane yeah, and needing a stiffer drink, Cindy for uh, yeah, you know what? I could I could have another drink before the plane. You know, and it, and it doesn't. You know, it, drinking on an airplane doesn't make you an alcoholic. What I'm saying is that I think that uh, the 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 road is there, right? Like I think like the building blocks for it are there that you can you can track it along the way that Jack's a big drinker. Uh, that you know when when the opportunity arises to to get a drink like it's at at that point in his life he's not obsessed with it he's not leaning on it in a way that uh appears to be completely devastating but there are other moments earlier in his life beyond that moment right where you could probably say yeah he's making some very bad drunken decisions whether it's uh the entirety of thailand uh <laughs> or his or his interactions with with sarah in mm-hmm. a tale of two cities feel at least somewhat booze addled um so it's it's compelling to me that we that we get here and it's it's like now is the moment that um jack drinking takes a a kind of like a more sinister tone because now we have a glimpse of the future now we know like that there's going to be a moment in time where he is really really roughed up where he really does not look good and it's in contrast to this especially like your head starts swimming once once hurley bursts out of the car tries to run away underwater in a window outside a holding cell you know he starts running away i'm one of the oceanic six i'm one of the oceanic six and so now you know okay so this is a flash forward hurley is also going to be getting off the island we have three of the six identified (laughs) in jack kate and hurley 
Italy. These are three of the people who are going to make it off the island. And then it, it starts, you know, a, one of the great joys of season four is the like the out of order puzzle piecing. Right. Yes. Where like you're trying to figure out who did what, when and where. And now you know that Jack is going to have a really rough time at a certain point. But right now, no beard. He nope. seems he seems well dressed. He seems like he's showered recently. And it's just a it's just a little hair of the dog, Mike. You know, it's mostly orange juice. It's just a smidge of vodka, right? It's not that bad. Well, I think to that to that point, I think it also represents like I think the further you know, we're going to get to the lie in quite a while, but I think the more the lie sort of reigns over Jack's life, the more he sort of falls down that hole. You know, I think he's still trying to control right now. We'll get to that with the horse scene of it all as he's trying to sort of keep Hurley in check. But I think more and more as the decisions that he made starts to loom over him, that's when he finds solace at the bottom of a bottle. So I think he made a really great point in that, like, it's always been a presence in his life, but that always happens with vices, right? Is like, when you are able to use it in moderation, it's just like a part of your day-to-day, but very, very quickly, depending on the situation, it can turn on a hairpin, and then you end up relying on it, and it ends up destroying your life in more ways than one. And to sort of have what is essentially part of, you know, the premiere of the show, now once again, part of the premiere of season three, as you said, maybe even the premiere of, of season two, I, mean, I don't even necessarily remember it, but now is the premiere of season four, it's a nice little, like, landmark you know we're tracking jack's drinking to show exactly where he is from an emotional fragility state um so jack is watching on the news it's hurley hurley you can tell by the car uh, which is a good touch and you can also tell in the fact that uh hurley you know drives through a whole warehouse of mirrors that were just sitting out there that you know not only is that bad luck hurley but we're also going quite literally through the looking glass Mm -hmm. which i thought was very fun yeah really 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 great sequence so hurley gets arrested and uh we're now in this place where like it's it because we're through the looking glass the show i think very uh rightly and sometimes doesn't quite get this balance right uh sometimes i think that the island stories this year are weaker than yeah, I mean, uh, the off we'll, island stuff we'll get to that i think as soon as next episode potentially yeah uh you know i think it's 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 a funny it's a funny balancing act that they now have to manage where before it was like well the flashbacks are getting stale and now they're like ooh, flash forwards and it's like oh some of the island stuff is starting to get a little stale yeah flash forward is sort of like the new kid in the family and the flat the, the iron island stuff is sort of like becoming the the older child or the redheaded stepchild of like ah yeah yeah you'll you'll be fine on your own but like let's nurse your new your new brother or sister flash forward you know they're they're very very young they're still trying to figure themselves out but they're also like new and shiny yeah uh, so it's not i don't think that's the case with this episode but what what is compelling to me is that the very first two scenes of the episode are all flash right mm-hmm. it's all flash forward uh so it opens with a flash forward you cut to commercial and then when we come back we're in uh the interrogation room with hurley and it's michael cudlitz it's big mike it's anna lucia's former partner who is doing the interrogation let's listen in sound number one Five minutes before you led ten cruisers on a chase across the city, you're minding your own business in a convenience store. Until you see something and freak out. Mr. Reyes, why'd you run like that? Who'd you see in there? Listen, buddy. I know you saw somebody in that store that made you run away and go on a Who's running away from anyone? Do you think I care that you're a celebrity... You crashed your Camaro in the wrong neighborhood. I'm not a celebrity. <laughs> Is that why you kept shouting, hey, I'm one of the Oceanic Six? You want to know a funny coincidence? 
Sure. I knew somebody on your plane. Really? Her name was Ana Lucia Cortez. She was my partner before I made detective. Dark hair. Gorgeous. Maybe you knew her. Maybe you met her on the plane before it took off. Sorry, never met her. Why don't you watch the tape? Maybe it'll spark something. I'm gonna get a donut. You want one? No, thanks. When I come back, you're gonna tell me who you ran from. There's that click again. <laughs> it's always the mouse click. Yeah, why is there using the mouse click? I don't know. <laughs> oh my god. Uh so uh yeah, I'd forgotten that uh Big Mike basically turns over his cards like, Yeah, I loved her, man. Yeah, that was so strange. Maybe it's because like this is the first person he's talked to who has been affiliated with Oce- the Oceanic, and he's like, oh, "I gotta get this off my chest." You know, like maybe you met her, and maybe you could tell me like what happened to her so I could get some closure. I mean, we we heaped a lot of praise onto Big Mike back in Collision for like being a very supportive partner. Who'd have known that maybe he had ulterior motives for doing so? Yeah, uh, it's interesting, uh, or it's, maybe it's the kind of thing where like uh, over time. Uh, you know, you you realize your connection to somebody is different than you thought it was. I don't know. I mean, we don't need to spend a ton of time dissecting the psychology of Big Mike. It's sad. <laughs> he lost someone he cared about. That's really yeah. what matters no, the most. It did seem like he got a promotion, though, right? Because I believe he was sort of like a, a sergeant. I think he was a beat cop with Anna. And it seems like at least in the, you know, small amount of time that has passed between the, the crash and now, you know, it seems like he's rocking the button he's doing down well. shirt. He's doing better. He's definitely doing better now. Um, but it's just another one of these moments that, um, you know, we've had a lot of these things happening where characters don't know about them, right? Like Christian being Jack and Claire's father. They mm-hmm. don't know it, but we, the audience, do. There have been a lot of moments like that of uh, Sawyer in the background of the police station while Boone is, you know, filing a report. This is this is a, a, a compelling moment because it's Hurley's life after the island and it's him starting to realize uh, or if not starting to realize necessarily, at least becoming exposed to the idea that there are deeper connections than he even knew and that those connections are continuing. It doesn't matter that they left, uh, that they've been, they've been touched by the island. They've been touched <gasps> by Jacob. Uh, although Hurley, I, I don't believe at this point has yet been touched by Jacob, no, which is that, a unique on, thing about I believe on the way to get on the plane mm-hmm. with the, with the guitar case. But I think to that point, it's also uh, a thing for us. You know, we're going to get to obviously like what the big lie is, uh, around the end of season four but i think we're starting to get a hint as to sort of like the uh the overarching narrative that they're trying to put forth you know when hurley denying that he knew anna lucia now we know that okay maybe the oceanic six are not telling the entire tale of lost for one reason or another up to this point because hurley obviously met anna lucia anna lucia died next to someone that he cared about very very much and him denying his involvement with her is now showing how even the beating heart of the show in hurley has now sort of carried forward with living out this false narrative off the island uh so after big mike leaves uh we didn't include this in the sound because it's really just lots of like loud noises uh a ghost 
the first sighting of Charlie in this episode. Yeah, so let's let's talk about this because this to me is distinctly different from all the other Hurley ghost stuff that we get. Because in that case, it's more so like, hey, this person pops up. This almost seems more like hallucinatory mm-hmm. to me. Of like, not only is he imagining charlie showing up there but he's imagining like the full window outside of the holding room is now underwater a la the looking glass you have someone who i don't think is dominic monaghan uh swimming by i think he says on his hand like you know uh you need to go back to help them which is what charlie's going to tell him later but this seems distinctly different to me than like every other ghost vision that hurley has here's the thing mike we don't really know and one of the one of the things that i love about this episode is it's letting us in on what hurley is experiencing Mm-hmm. Um, but we actually, you know, from, from, from this point forward, I think for the most part, the ghosts that he sees are like his secret. You know, we don't, we don't really see, we don't really see that stuff from his perspective. And so you don't know if like when he says like checkmate Mr. Echo and he's playing chess with Mr. Echo, that the echo that he's seeing isn't like just covered in blood. We have no idea. Yeah. You know, um, so, uh, you know, you get it with, with, uh, Richard Alpert's wife, like with later Isabella. on in the show. Um, and, you know, maybe that's, you know, more peaceful because Hurley is closer to, uh, acceptance as well and closer to filling his destiny as, uh, you know, making his own luck as the person who's going to accept the job as the king of the island. Um, I think that there is, there is something really, uh, uh, you know, inviting about the fact that like we get to see the trauma that Hurley is dealing with Mm -hmm. and it just leaves you to wonder like, what else does he see and how much is he able to just sort of like accept that uh, these are things that he's seeing later on as he goes. Yeah. It is interesting in that. Yeah. I I do wonder how much like, other external paraphernalia is involved, right? Like, I guess the comparison with the Echo thing would be like, he says, checkmate, Mr. Echo, and then the smoke monster comes in and beats the crap out of Echo again. Right. You know, that it's, it's less so about, like, the ghost and more so about the environment involved. Maybe Hurley just has, like, a very active imagination at this point as well. But either way, I mean, Big Mike's going to come storming in and basically offer him an alternative without even realizing it of like, hey, we could send you right back to the nut house you came from. And Hurley sees this as a saving grace. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so he's thrilled about that. He's pumped about that. Meanwhile, back on the island, uh, we're getting a little bit of a phone call between Hurley and Jack. I love this little conversation, even though it's just like, it's basically just there to catch us up. You yeah, know? But, the, but the interesting thing, though, Josh, at least what I noticed, and maybe this is me sort of like uh, looking out for it, I do believe we see all of the Oceanic Six in some regard in these first like two minutes yeah. where we have Jack and Hurley talking when Hurley pans around to everyone hanging out at camp. Saeed is in the foreground. Kate approaches Jack to talk to him. Son is talking with Claire. And then there is like a very meaningful close up on Aaron. And so even though like, yes, it's not only the oceanic six, I did find it interesting how it's almost like the camera is sort of dropping hints. Jack Bender is sort of like uh, planning his own flags as to like who these oceanic six might be. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Uh, I hadn't noticed that, but I love that. Uh, you do get like a big tour of a lot of different things, right? It's Jack saying, uh, we're getting picked up soon. Pack your bags, buddy. He says to, to Hurley, he gives Ben a wink as he says that, which is so sassy. Uh, yeah, this- cause, cause Jack is riding high right now. Remember, like he defeated the others. He beat the snot out of Ben and now his people are finally leaving the island. And like, yes, Locke's a little bit of a thorn in his side, but it's happening. You There's know, more this, of a thorn this guy- in Naomi's back. 
Yeah, he's on he's on the top of the world right yeah. now, and so he can gloat a little bit, especially because now Ben, this big bad, is now in his capture. Yeah. Uh, so Naomi's still on the ground. She's got the knife in her back. Locke is on the loose. Jack tells Kate, uh, if we see him again, I'm going to kill him. And Kate doesn't really, like, stop him there. Uh, like, doesn't really say, like, you think that's necessary? Doesn't that feel uh, a little I, I don't know. I mean, of all people, though, I think Kate herself would understand, like, there, if there's a rationale to murder, I think you can excuse yourself a smidge. Yeah. Uh, I think, like, this whole, like, I'm going to kill him thing is like, Jack, chill out, man. Uh, you're getting off the island. Maybe that shouldn't be priority number one. Um, this is a wild moment where Rose tells Claire, like, oh, well, Charlie's the real MVP. If he hadn't turned off that gizmo, none of this would be happening. So when Charlie comes back, Claire, you better go full bloom. Yeah, like, can I offer you my tent? Or actually, I don't know if the sex tent is still set up down the beach, but you want to head there for a good respite. I'll take care of the baby. Rose is like, let me give you some advice. And Claire's like, what are you talking about? And Rose just, like, does some, like, lewd hand gestures. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh my god, that seems pretty wide. Uh, and so, uh, it's, it's funny, but it's also sad because we know Charlie is dead. Yeah, uh, and that's the other thing as well, is I will say if there is one sticking point of this episode, and it's just a, a general sticking point about season four and just the Claire arc, as much as I love Hurley and as much as Charlie's death clearly has a profound impact on him immediately, like, Man, I wish we had more Claire in this episode. I know. You know, like, she should be one of the people that we immediately go to. And the fact that it's resorted to, like, Hurley telling Claire and her collapsing his arms, and that's basically it, I think is, it's just, it's 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 fertile ground that I think goes unexplored, unfortunately. Generally, I think this is uh, one of the things that the show does poorly. Uh, yeah. is, it's just Claire, generally. They don't really give her the attention that she deserves. We've talked and, about that And especially that a lot. with such, like, an, a ripe opportunity, right? Like, as we talked about during Par Avion, this isn't really dealing around what do we do with the character. Her on-island love is dead. This is, like, a perfect opportunity to explore that, but for one reason or another, maybe it's because they knew they had more of a firm grasp on Hurley than they did with Claire of, like, how would Hurley react? Whereas... Obviously, if, if on paper you're like, okay, this guy dies, uh, who should we focus on more, his best friend or his girlfriend? You think the latter would be more important. It also is interesting in that, you know, like a Sun Claire Rose scene is very, very rare, especially with the second book of Lost. You know, it really calls back to me in Exodus, the Sun Claire Shannon scene in the caves. It's just a configuration we don't really see. And also, we can clock the Claire hair because Claire's hair has once again changed somehow in her brief time at the radio tower between seasons. So here she is, Danielle Russo, uh, first scene of the episode, and uh, very satisfying to rewatch this uh, in in light of everything and to see, like, Mir Furlan is Danielle Russo just like being Ben in the face. <laughs> so, okay, so, so let's let's because I forgot that there was the additional punch, Mike. I had I didn't remember that. Yeah, well, so let's let's stop down and talk about this because there is a bit of our own missing piece from uh, from our talking through the looking glass because I know we did put number one on the Ben beatdown list as Jack kicking the crap out of Ben. I don't believe we put any of the Russo punches on there. Uh, so where where should we throw these on? Hmm. Uh, man. Well, I gotta go and pull up the beatdown counter now. Let yeah, me so, just. So uh, let's, we'll do. I'll, I'll do a quick reset as we go into season four here, because of course, number one on the Ben beatdown counter is Jack kicking the crap out of Ben during their meeting in Through the Looking Glass after uh, Ben falsely claims that Jin and Saeed and Bernard are dead. 
Number two is the very first time we meet Ben, or should we say Henry Gale, when Danielle Russo harpoons him, essentially uh, fires a crossbow through his shoulder. Number three is from the same episode. One of them, Saeed beats him up to I a got pulp this. This is easy. Yeah, this is easy. Uh, so I think I think uh, Rousseau punching Ben in through the looking glass is number four. I agree because that because that also that's a harder one than in this episode because I'm pretty sure it knocks him out. It's also great in that like it shuts him up during that whole beginning of the end monologue. Yes, uh, and so then I think uh, when she hits him again here, that's like an encore. The encore is fun, but it's not the best show of the night. Uh, I think that that is going to go hand in hand with Sawyer punching Ben in the mouth. Uh, so I think it'll be a little bit higher, a little bit higher, just beneath Locke hitting Ben with a crutch, because at least there's a fun prop in Locke hitting Ben with the crutch. And also, I think it's it's important that it's right above the Sawyer thing, because that thing was just like, we almost had to throw it on there technically, right? It had no, like, plot permanence. It was just like, hey, I guess this technically counts, so I guess we have to throw it on there. And I think it makes sense for it to be not, not only below Locke beating up Ben with the crutch, but number six, of course, the infamous Schrodinger shelf. We're still not sure in lockdown whether Ben purposely uh, is playing like he got knocked out by the shelf or whether he did so uh, accidentally. And then, of course, number five, another technicality, but Ben's surgery in which Jack purposely makes an incision on Ben that causes him to hold him hostage. I do think, uh, in true lost fashion, I think we put them in at number four and number eight. I think that yeah, makes a lot of I sense. Think th- I think that that works for me. I think it's, I think it's the, it's, it feels like the, that, that one from through the looking glass is just a long time coming. And then yeah. like Russo just like wasn't satisfied enough this time. So she just had to get one more hit in, which was, which was great. And I loved the encore. It's just not, it's not quite as powerful, but it, it is delightful. It's yeah, delightful. And, but, but I think this one is also held by the fact that even if the punch is weak sauce, Russo follows it up with a, she's not your daughter. Yes. And I am happy because I think that, you know, through the looking glass has a short, but sweet reunion between mother and daughter. Now we can finally expound on that. And I do like now sort of in a Jackian fashion that Rousseau can throw a bit of weight around, right? Cause now she has her daughter back and now she can officially tell Ben like, Nope, this is not your daughter. This is technically mine. You stole her from me. So I have you tied up. Don't make me shoot another crossbow through you. So, uh, we leave this radio tower scene, uh, with Naomi in the foreground, by the way, her eyes are wide open. Uh, she looks very deceased. Yeah, and I I do remember initially watching this when we get sort of the rack focus on the knife. Uh, obviously, it's going to foreshadow Naomi's escape. But I thought in the moment that Ben was going to somehow use that knife to cut his restraints free and escape. No, uh, that's not what happens. Uh, she's she's going to be alive on her own at some point, and I don't really know exactly how because she looks severely deceased at this moment. I don't know. That. Listen, look at Mikhail. The island can heal guess, you in magical I guess you're ways. Right. I guess you're right. Maybe maybe uh, when Mikhail operated on her, some of that uh, rubbed off. Uh, you never know. Maybe that's exactly what happened. Um, we're gonna go back to the beach. We're gonna we're gonna listen in on this full scene, but I want to set it up because. We're listening to the full scene, and I think that because of that, like, we're kind of, um, we are going to capture sort of the essence of where we are on Lost right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to have the, the Hurley cannonball moment, which is, I think, like, the last, like, pure, <laughs> innocent moment on the beach. There's going to be more joy to have on the beach this season. You know, they're going to spend some time there, but I think it's the last, like, purely innocent moment on the beach. Um, and then we're going to get the news about Charlie. And I think that that's very evocative of the era we're in where things are getting a lot more real. We're in the end game now, Mike. So let's listen in on sound number two. Did I ever tell you I won the lottery? 
I got like $150 million. Worst thing that ever happened to me. Oh, yeah. Who needs $150 million, right? And now it'll all be gone. Because they all think I'm dead. When we get rescued and I go back, I'm going to be free. I want to do a cannonball. I've been walking up and down this beach every day and looking out at this water. And I want to do a cannonball. Curly, you want to do a cannonball? Cannonball. stuff to say about this scene but let me just say in general episode is a powerhouse performance from jorge garcia yeah uh you see so much because like it's it's like the the joy of him talking to bernard then the the like the private joy of him just being in the ocean and and like lapping that up uh to the point where like you can imagine like he would get out and like cannonball again and just like do yeah. that on repeat for a little while because it's a celebration right like not only that this is th- he just had his big hero moment if we remember from through the looking glass where despite being rebuffed by sawyer and jack of life like he drives in saves the day like he's the conquering hero and now he's going to leave the island and be free this is also a really fun case of art imitating life because uh, apparently like on the last day of shooting the pilot Back when they had no idea what the show would become, Jorge Garcia did a big cannonball into the ocean as, quote, a little symbolic moment of triumph. And so I do love the writer sort of keying that in here to show, you know, relating back to the actor's moment of joy, but also to that point, like being on the precipice of a far greater thing that you don't even know is coming. Yeah. And it is so, God, it's it's so fantastically sad. It's like evoking the best moments of like, um, do no harm. Right, where everyone's fawning over Aaron, and then the mood immediately shifts when you see Shannon and Saeed walk down the beach. This reminder of everything is good, oh wait, everything is not so good. Uh, and, and I do also love the use of music as well, and particularly the piano. We talked about this in Through the Looking Glass and now a little bit of Greatest Hits about how piano was such a key instrumentation in the themes of Charlie. 
And I think using it here is sort of like a last bastion, a last callback to this character who is gone, but certainly not forgotten. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things this episode does really well is, you know, the gravity of losing Charlie. This isn't, we didn't lose Boone or Shannon, (laughs) even though those were important too, but like, we lost Charlie. Charlie's gone. And like, it hits everyone. It hits everyone when they find this out. Yeah, Sy- Saeed has like... I mean, Saeed and Charlie have their own relationship as well. So I think that's another big reaction. And again, looking to Jorge Garcia, like he's going to have to internalize a lot over the course of the rest of this episode. But like at the moment, he just looks back at that ocean wordlessly. you know. And I can imagine all the stuff that's going through their head of Charlie sort of rebuffing his offer to go with them to the fact that like this is where Charlie ended up going. The fact that Desmond doesn't even need to say anything, I think, is a really, really nice touch. There's just it's there's a lot of it's weird to say beauty in a death announcement, but like all the small reactions that everyone has to Charlie's death, I think, are very much in character and show like how much the actors know these characters inside and out four years going. Yeah, totally, totally, totally agree. Um, it's just great. It's 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 really upsetting, but it's also very, very, very well done. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Back at the radio tower. Here comes George Winkowski. It's like, yeah. hey, that doesn't sound like the guy Fisher we were talking Stevens to. Fisher officially back now. Maybe, yeah. you know, he's a hacker. Maybe he was able to distort his voice before to come off anonymously. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a little surprising. It's like, oh, well, that's not Minkowski who I heard before, but okay. <laughs> well, maybe it's good. Maybe it isn't. And he's just like trying to really deepen the, the whole facade by being like, I'm George Minkowski. Yeah. Would, I inter- would I be the real Minkowski if I didn't reveal my first name as well? Yeah. And they're like, so where's Naomi? And it's like, oh, well, she uh, got stabbed and she's dead. Oh, my God. She's not dead. She's missing. And suddenly Naomi is gone. And Mike, the only thing more unrealistic that uh, than Naomi being alive is that Naomi somehow escaped without anyone except for Ben noticing yeah. yeah maybe it was just that they're like well she's dead let people die all the time on the island let's disregard her we're leaving isn't this fantastic uh but i do love ben's super douchey i don't know uh because it shows that even when he's captured benjamin linus still feels like he has the upper hand and he is also kind of like an insolent child during this entire sequence as well i'm excited to get a lot of prisoner ben over the course of season four because it's distinctly different than prisoner Henry it's a Dale. it's a fun version of ben for sure it's a really fun version of ben uh yeah it's i don't know i love ben just giving the shoulder shrug it's really really good um back at the beach sawyer wants to call up he wants to talk to the radio crew be like okay we should talk this through because i don't know what not penny's boat means but we should process this as a group there's a huge debate about what to do 
uh, and uh, it it gets quickly dissolved when Hurley takes the radio and throws into the ocean. So we know that if Hurley was in the dark night, what he would have done if he was on one of the two fairies. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I got to be honest. I'm not entirely sure why this is the move. Uh, but, uh, okay, you know? I mean, I, I think it's less so for him. It's like, look, less talking, more walking, essentially. Yeah, like- but if low on walkie-talkies, maybe you keep the walkie-talkie. Uh, but I guess, like, it's it's Hurley making an unconventional choice. And, 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 he's, and he's also a little emotionally charged right is, now, right? His, his best friend just died. But I love Hurley chucks it and then immediately turns around like, we're, wa- you know, we're, we gotta go there. And sure, just goes, going where? Yeah. Like, it's a, a fantastic bit of comical Sawyer of like, what the hell is going on here a very fun you know funny sawyer scene between that and like you said that i don't know even i don't even know what not penny's boat means right uh back at the radio tower uh danielle's found a blood trail so has kate uh two different blood trails that they have found uh and uh jack is kind of just like uh, yeah no i'm gonna go with russo i think me russo and ben we're gonna go uh we're gonna go and, and scoop this out scope this out and she's like all right you sure you don't want me to come because i think it could be a dummy trail Jack, when do you learn, like, every time you deny Kate doing something, she's going to do it regardless. Stop putting your hand on that stove, bro, and being like, oh, it's really hot. I didn't know that. It's going to happen every single time. Yeah, and then Kate hugs Jack and yoinks the satellite phone from his back pocket. Ben once again observes this. <laughs> Stop uh, doing things in front of the tree, people. Otherwise, Ben's gonna. Ben is like a Michael in this instance. He's always watching. I just don't understand how Jack doesn't feel the sat phone being removed from his back pocket. That feels like a, a thick object. Uh, I mean, I think he's uh, thinking about other things, if you know what I mean. Because you think in the moment that like this is a very weighty hug because remember this is after jack tells kate essentially that he loves her so maybe he has different things on his mind after uh kate you know steals the phone from him but yeah not a great look from jack in this episode like really sky high moments for jack and through the looking glass not so much here considering he gets like duped by naomi leaving duped by the fake trail and then duped by kate taking the walkie from his back pocket uh, so back at the beach, everyone's loading up on their guns. They're getting ready to go. Uh, Sawyer, uh, thought he was going to get a good night of sleep. Alas, it's time to, time to go on the move. And he's all, a little bit buzzed too, probably right now. He's been, you've been seeing him in the background chugging beers. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I also, that was a really great, uh, moment where the first time we go back to the beach, it's Juliet digging the graves of the others that are dead. And Sawyer's just sitting there drinking a beer but i think that also speaks to the characters right because juliet knew these people like these were her co-workers some of them were her friends and sawyer does not give a shit uh and so he's just like yeah let those bodies rot i, yeah. I don't really care uh, and that also speaks about i think their relationship as well and yeah i mean to that point the last time i think sawyer got a good night's sleep was when Locke interrupted him to go out barefooted into the middle of the jungle to find anthony cooper yeah uh, so he's, he's, you know, he's had a lot going on. I'm really excited to talk about Sawyer in a minute here. Uh, but, but right now he's just like kind of like cranky. Um, meanwhile, we, we do another flash forward. Uh, we see Hurley is once again back at Santa Rosa. He's playing Connect Four and some, uh, very nefarious happenings on the way. Let's listen in sound number three. You almost got me that time. How about best out of seven? Are you ready for your meds, Hugo? Oh, by the way, you have a visitor. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Hello. My name is Matthew Abaddon. I'm an attorney for Oceanic Airlines. Can we talk for a few minutes? Okay. I'm here, Mr. Reyes, because we heard about your recent episode. Your arrest, your incarceration here. Frankly, we feel terrible about it. So, on behalf of Oceanic, I'd like to extend you an invitation for a little upgrade. What kind of upgrade? To a facility where the paint isn't peeling off the walls. Where you'd have your own bathroom. You can see the ocean from where... I don't want to see the ocean. No problem. Actually, thanks. I'm... I'm, I'm fine right here. Are you fine, Mr. Reyes? What do you mean? You're in a mental institution. Who'd you say you were again? I'd like to see a business card. I must have left them at home. Then we're done, dude. Are they still alive? What? You heard me. Nurse! Nurse! Get out of here! You better get out of here! Help me! Help me! He's after me! No, 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 no! That guy's after me! Help me! Matthew Abaddon! <laughs> He's here! Lance Reddick! Lance Reddick is here. Uh, I adore Lance Reddick. I love Lance Reddick in basically anything he's ever in. Uh, one of my favorite, like, uh, just like perennial supporting actors. He's tremendous. Every time you see him on screen, I've loved him since Oz was, uh, I think my first exposure to him. He's clearly, uh, iconic from The Wire. Yeah. He's tremendous on Fringe, uh, the John Wick movies. And so it, it was a delight when I found out that he had been cast for Lost. Of course, I think the show has much bigger plans for Matthew Abaddon than Matthew Abaddon is, uh, able to, to execute on, uh, because yeah. Lance Reddick lands the aforementioned fringe uh he lands a series regular role on fringe and i think that the reasons that they are still able to get him involved in some capacity in future episodes is because of the bad robot connection um so at least there's like some some you know friendly crossover thanks to thanks to the jj abrams through line um but i i really just love i love the the like sort of like the unsettlingness of this character of Matthew Abaddon of him coming here uh he's what we're going to come to know about him is he's an envoy of Charles Widmore right right um, and, and and that's you know it it lies in the name itself so the last name Abaddon uh comes from the bible i believe it's the name of the what they call the angel of the bottomless pit which was essentially uh, an angel whose job it was to sort of like... Are you an angel? Exactly. Oh, God. Uh, no, unfortunately, luckily, Lance Reddick... Though maybe if he, touched some of those, if he touched those Star Wars prequels, maybe they would have come off a lot better because everything Lance Reddick touches turns to gold. Uh, but essentially, like, this was an angel who took souls to their destination in sort of the last judgment. Though there are sort of some... Uh, some analysis from biblical scholars that say that Abaddon is a form of Satan, 
or a form of the Antichrist. So I think it's a very fun fitting name in the essence of like a John Locke or even a Danielle Rousseau of here's a character who is sort of serving as the messenger of a larger force who may be good at first, but may actually be evil uh, behind the scenes. But I mean, to that point, it actually the the character of Abaddon and what happens with Lance Reddick actually uh, ends up, you know, being very interesting in retrospect, given the fact that Lance Reddick was initially considered for Mr. Echo. Right. But couldn't do it because of his commitments to The Wire. And we know what happened with AAA as well. So it seems like no matter what, Lance Reddick and whoever auditioned for Mr. Echo is sort of doomed to this fate of getting cast on Lost. Then something else gets in the way that sort of puts their commitment to the show in jeopardy. And as a result, they get sort of killed off unceremoniously. I wish that we'd had more of Matthew Abaddon. I love what we get. I do wish that we'd gotten a little bit more because um, there, it, it, the mind wanders with the possibilities of uh, if we had had like... Um, you know, if Abaddon makes it, like if if Lance Reddick is able to continue with the show, like you can envision the world in which uh, rather than getting like this random character Zoe in the final <laughs> season as Charles Whitmore's lieutenant, like you can imagine Abaddon being there and us being like clued into like Sawyer, uh, you know, on his recon mission with Abaddon. But like, can Abaddon kind of like Hans Gruber Sawyer? Like that would have been a better episode for sure. Or you um, can imagine, uh, Josh, I know one of your big sticking points with the off-island stuff is you would love to see what's the connection between Winmore and Paik with Paik Industries. And I feel like when you have sort of like the traveling salesman that is Matthew Abaddon, using him as sort of the face of the Winmore Corporation could involve more stuff with Winmore as well as sort of an enemy. You even see it here, right, as Abaddon visits early. I will say uh, Abaddon, while making differently a sort of demanding presence, Maybe get a business card if you're claiming you're from Oceanic <laughs> Airlines. Like, I don't not- know. What an odd, like, did you bring your business cards? Like, I don't know. Maybe I need to start traveling with business cards more often. I, I, this I has never come up for me, Mike. I don't know. Maybe if you're trying to come across like somebody. I also loved, as well, if you look in the background of this scene while they're at the chessboard, if you look on the chalkboard, there's a palm tree, there's a big old boat, there's the ocean, there's a giant shark. I don't know if Hurley was the one to draw this, considering that as he talks about with Abaddon, he does not want to get near the ocean whatsoever. But I find it very fun that whether through his own doing or not, the island is sort of following Hurley no matter where he goes. No matter where he goes. So it's it's great. And I just, I love the line read and the shift in the conversation of, are they still alive? Or even, or even going, just like the, uh, the, are you fine, yeah. Mr. Reyes? Like yeah. it really, like you said, takes a distinct turn of, hey, here's this guy offering, you know, uh, to, to mull things over outside of courts uh, from an oceanic perspective to like, no, I'm actually here for more nefarious purposes, and I know much more than you think I do. Yeah, I just love the, you heard me, is just a really, really menacing uh, delivery. So, really love uh, Lance Reddick, and I uh, wish we'd gotten more, but I'm thrilled we got anything. Um, all right, so this I love, Mike, and this is like, this is, this is, this, oh, this is so good. So, they're in the jungle, they're on their way to meet the Radio Tower crew, and here's Sawyer. Yeah. Sawyer being like, you okay, Hugo? And I was like, what? I don't want to talk. And he's like, look, you guys were friends. I just wanted to talk to you. And like, uh, Hurley's like, no, I'm good. Let's, we should probably just keep going. And when Sawyer is like pretty clued into the fact that Hurley doesn't want to talk right now, he still tries to help. You know, he says, all right, well, we're going to slow down because we're going really fast and like, let's slow down. You know, like, let's not like overdo it right now. Let's just like take a beat. Uh, and, uh, Hurley insists, I'm fine. 
and Sawyer, you know, when the appropriate thing at this point is like he doesn't want to talk, and he goes basically he says like, "Let me know if you want to talk." He says, "Holler yeah. if you need me." Um, it's a great Sawyer moment. Like this is a guy who's like trying to build back. I think, uh, and we, you know, we're on that journey towards him being the guy who's going to be able to jump out of the helicopter. Um, I think that this is just uh, a, it's very subtle but really really powerful forward moving work from James Sawyer Ford. And I love it because it's also such a culmination of basically like the entire back half of season three. Of their right? friendship, of yeah, Hurley and Sawyer becoming tight. Yeah, and there's so much stuff there. And you could see now Sawyer actually took the lessons that Hurley was trying to give to him, especially yes. in, in Left Behind. And it really is such a shift for the character. And it's also, you know, really reminding us of why 10 episodes from now, he's going to be the one to jump out of the helicopter to save a bunch of people to get off the island. Uh, this is, this is a guy who is, despite having his own shit going on, as he mentioned before, like he is demonstrably changing and trying to think more about others instead of every man for himself. And so I, I really like what Sawyer does here, especially like, even look at like their stuff in season two, right? We have come a long way from Sawyer making the umpteenth fat joke and Hurley trying to beat the snot out of him. Now we have Sawyer genuinely saying behind being like, hey, dude, I know you're really in a tough place right now. Like, let me know if I can help. But I also respect the distance if you just want to hang out. Though maybe considering what happens next, Hurley was hoping that Sawyer would not keep that distance. Yeah, uh, because Hurley's going to stumble upon Jacob's cabin. Uh, he's gonna, you know, hear the whispers, he's gonna get lost, and there it is, Jacob's cabin. Uh, so let's put a pin in that because some other stuff happens first, and then we'll have a more elaborate cabin scene to talk through. But that's where we leave Hurley in this moment. He has come face to face with Jacob's cabin. The last time we as an audience saw it, weird shit went down. Yeah, uh, and, so also, we and also it stayed in again. one location, not transporting everywhere. Correct. And the, it's like Howl's moving cabin. Um, <laughs> uh, so elsewhere, in the jungle, Jack and Danielle, they're on the path. Uh, Danielle says, no, this is a dummy trail. And Jack's like, shit, Kate was right. Uh, better call and, and see if I can't... Uh, oh, wait, where's my radio? And Brad's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, Kate took that. <gasps> and I love it. I should probably... I should have probably told you that she took the phone, but... You beat me up, Jack. You owe yeah. me one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he's also like, uh, yeah, she found the right trail also. So Ben watched Naomi not only get up, but did also watch Naomi do a double back and create a dummy trail. Um, there is a part of me, Mike, because when we go next to Kate, that is very impressed by the fact that Naomi uh, not only created two trails... Um, while, while dying, while dying, but also climbed a tree. I mean, uh, Kate, I mean, listen. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're a powerful female character on Lost, you climb a tree. It just, so, it but, just happens. I'm sure Kate so the, appreciates it. So there's the piece of me that's like impressed by the physical feat, and then the other piece of me that's like, you expended all that energy on the dummy trail and climbing the tree that you died. You actually probably may have been able to make it. Like, if you get the proper attention, if you're like, hey, Jack, I'm alive. I just got stabbed in the back. Maybe, like, uh, you're the doctor, right? Like, help me. I don't know. But but I think from her perspective, because remember, she now thinks that all of 815 turned on her. She thinks that Locke represents all of them. So I can imagine that she doesn't necessarily want Jack's help at this point. She's like, Maybe. I need to get the hell away from these people. Let me create as many distractions as possible to sort of buy myself time. I think to your point, maybe the effort has sort of uh, overexerted her injuries, causing her death. But I feel like that's an extension of maybe minutes. And without that phone, I'm not sure what she's doing there. Yeah. Um, Kate is in the jungle. She has the phone. The phone rings. It's Minkowski. 
he's looking for Naomi. And she's like, yeah, uh, she's, uh, she's out. She's like, out where? And he's like, okay, so something happened. There was an accident. Accident? What kind of? And then she hangs up. Mike, this is awful. Uh, there was a piece of me that was like, what if, what if, uh, Kate is like trying to, like, she wants to, like, take matters into her own hands and, like, she's going to call, like, if Minkowski calls, she wants to be there to, like, try and, like, talk reason to him and explain to him what's going on. But then when he calls, uh, she just freaks out and hangs up. Very bad look. Not a good yeah, look. Yeah, at least pull a Han Solo and be like, uh, everything's perfectly fine now. Everyone's good. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not great. It's not great. Uh, Kate, Kate's whole, like, whole thing of, like, I'm gonna go and look for Naomi on my own. Like, in theory, I'm not mad at it. I'm not even mad that she has the phone as long as she's gonna talk to Minkowski. Like, as soon as they make contact, be like, look, something happened and this is what happened. And I hope that, you know, I bring a doctor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but instead, she, uh, she hangs up. She panics. I mean, it all works out in the end, though, right? Because I mean, Does I, it? Think, <laughs> I think it's For much everyone? more commendable that she's able to talk Naomi out of slitting her throat and yeah. being like, "Hey, we're with you here. You can hop on the phone and, and do whatever you want." So I do, I do forgive Kate. A little bit for this game. Not a great. You would you would think that someone who's able to maintain and juggle multiple identities will be able to come up with a cover cover story like on the fly rather than sort of panically hanging up. Yeah, this is a little odd. It's just a little strange. So uh, Minkowski calls back and Naomi covers for everybody. I had an accident. Had an accident. Uh, hit a tree branch. Tell my sister I love her. And with that, Naomi is dead. Though she She's will show up in dead. the in the next episode. Uh, I mean, what do we think of her? Sort of final actor like we sort of said naomi was kind of like a ubiquitous character yet another one that we feel like maybe could have could have uh, had more potential if she was playing into the larger narrative i mean do you think it's that like she had such hope in 815 that she does end up following kate's instructions here because she could have very easily have just especially if she's with like the kimi side of things could have been like oh no john Locke, kill me please get here and blow it all away well, she, she did in a, in a, in a manner of speaking, as we're going to come to find out that Naomi doesn't have a sister and tell my sister I love her is a, is a, as a distress signal. True. Um, so, you know, she, she isn't fully backing 815 in this moment. You know, it's not like she's turned around all of a sudden and, and had a change of heart. Uh, maybe she's still in this moment thinks she's going to survive, uh, but needs to like preserve some measure of, uh, safety for herself and get her people more prepared in case they show up and they need to like, take drastic action. Um, um, you know, it actually could be like a final screw you to that point of like, hey, look, I could kill Kate now, but why don't I just give the signal to this team of mercs that are off island to like come here and just kill everyone right now? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a possibility. So either way, she's dead. And I don't know if she's dead if she didn't uh, do all of the extra feats of strength. I think maybe it's just like, hey, Doc, knife in my back. I, it's, it's impressive, though. And this will Help also start the, the trend in some of these premieres, right? Of like, here's this character we thought we died in the previous season finale. Uh, let's bring them back. I'll certainly have some thoughts about that when we get to the season six premiere, because I still don't know how I feel about the whole bringing back Juliet. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we'll 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 get there. Lost loves to do this, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they love to be like, you thought this character was dead, but let's wait an entire you know off season and then come back. I mean, we're going to see it in a manner of speaking with Charlie, even though he he is very dead. They're still like, you thought this character was off the show, but we're going to bring him back for one final encore. All right. So let's talk about what happens next in like the the literal bullet points, and then let's talk about what we think happened. Um, <laughs> so so Hurley sees Jacob's cabin. 
He goes to the door. He sees the dog painting on the wall. He sees someone rocking in the chair. And this time it does look a lot like John Terry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you think it's Christian. Um, and then someone looks back at him from the door. To me, that looks like Terry O'Quinn. Uh, yeah, but- though I do believe that the, it was just a random actor that I think they hired. So this uh, wasn't like the, the first man in the chair. It was just like a rando crew member. I think they just had a guy pop his eye into the hole there. Yeah, so somebody pops his eye into the hole. To me, it looked like Terry O'Quinn, but whoever it is, it's somebody looking back at him. Um, Hurley turns around. He runs away. He sees the cabin again. He falls back. Suddenly, John Locke is here, torch in hand. Hello, Hugo. Um, so that's what happens. But, Mike, what happened? What yeah. happened here? I mean, so the big... I think the major point of interest for me is, like you said, Hal's moving cabin. Is the fact that this is... What we thought initially, and what we'll find out really when they go visit, you know, the the cabin in Cabin Fever, and even in the the season five finale, like it really does seem like a stationary location. So I guess the cabin popping up. I mean, I guess the question is, is this the real cabin? Yeah. Um, or is it Smokey McSmokerton? Yeah. I mean, I I do think that the fact that the door opened and sort of like the whispers, almost inviting Hurley in. Personally, seems more man in black to me than Jacob, maybe because it seems a bit more nefarious. But this idea, maybe man in black feels like at this point, like he might be able to influence Hurley the way he sort of influenced John Locke. Again, we're going along with that theory that the man behind the curtain stuff was entirely the man in black. Maybe he feels like, all right, let you know, this guy's in a very vulnerable place. Let's see if I can get him onto my side. And he's like, rather than bring Hurley to the cabin, let's just plonk the cabin right in front of Hurley and invite him inside. Yeah, I think that like future events make the strongest case for this being uh, the man in black, because we're going to have Hurley lead Locke and Ben back to the cabin at the end of the season. And then Locke is going to talk to Christian Shepard, who we know is the man in black. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and you could, you could associate it with like the man in black is trying to manipulate the candidates, thinks that Hurley's feeble underestimates Hurley. That could be, you know, interpreted as a piece of his undoing. Um, that, you know, Hurley's presence often rallies the people, right? Like, yeah. with Hurley there, like, often because of Hurley's presence, people are feeling yeah, good and ready like to go. he's, like, the key demo for the 815ers, right? Like, if you've gotten Hurley, you've pretty much gotten everybody. Right, right. So, I think uh, there is a there is a reason uh, to believe that this is the man in black. Um, and I And I wonder, you know... You know, because then at this moment, like he's also getting associated with the whispers. He's hearing the whispers in this episode in a mm-hmm. little bit. We're going to see him talking to ghosts again. Um, my whole thing is uh, the way that I've like I've talked about this before. I talked about it earlier in this podcast. Uh, but just to put a point on it, that uh, the way that I reconcile the whispers and the others uh, being uh, associated with each other sometimes and then not associated with each other sometimes is that uh, I interpret that the others have some sort of alliance with the ghosts of the island right. and so are able to use the whispers from time to time. They they uh, have the sword. They went to the cave and said, like, you will fight for us now. And exactly. then once you're done, your spirits are able to move on. Some version of that. And so Hurley now being able to hear the whispers and see ghosts and everything like that, is this uh, a sign of his growing momentum towards becoming the leader of the island? Is this something that the man in black in approaching Hurley the way he does accidentally unlocks? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it something that the island is choosing for for Hurley? I think one of the things that I really like about Hurley 
is that unlike the other candidates, it does not appear that he has an in uh, an interaction with Jacob before he comes to the island for the first time. That that it's very that it's very part and parcel with Hurley's whole thing of you make your own luck. That he ended up on the island, he wasn't summoned there, and that that becomes interesting to Jacob, and so that puts him on the radar. I kind of love that interpretation. So I I think that I prefer this if it isn't something that like Jacob did to Hurley, that Jacob's courting Hurley in this morning, that Jacob's still observing Hurley, and I kind of like this idea of like maybe the island itself is assessing Hurley's worthiness. Maybe the monster by trying to make this move on Hurley is accidentally courting disaster. Um, but I think that there's, there's a lot of meat on the bone here. There's no full concrete answer to how this, uh, all comes together as far as my interpretation, but there's a lot to, uh, a lot to, to, to shoot the shit about. I mean, I love the idea that, you know, Jacob has been trying to pursue a partner so many times, you know, uh, did sort of like the background checks and got this big list of candidates. And then it happens to be like the guy that you're not seeking after is the the true soulmate, right? In a manner of speaking that, like you said, I mean, the number stuff seems to provide the fact that Hurley, for all intents and purposes, like was pushing against a lot to get on the plane in the first place. Yeah. And I love this idea that, yeah, Jacob had pursued all these people, touched all these people. And it was only after maybe watching these actions in seasons one through four that he's like, yeah, you know what? This Hurley guy, actually, like, he could be good. You know, I, I didn't realize that he was sitting in front of me all along. Let's talk about the Locke side of things, though, because you seem to believe that, like, the eye, at least in this moment, look like Terry O'Quinn's. Locke shows up right now after the cabin, you know, appears and disappears. Do you think that, did you think Locke just happened to find Hurley there? Was he truly, like, hanging out with the man in black? Maybe the no, man in black told no, him, I don't like, go find him? I don't think it's that Locke is hanging out with the man in black. I think that, like, if anything, it is suggestive and evocative of where the show is going and where the man in black's plans lie, that he's uh, going to manipulate Locke into dying and then taking on his likeness. Um, if anything, it's a little bit of a tell of where the show is going. I think that that is potentially interesting. And then beyond that... Uh, I think undeniably compelling to me, uh, and uh, is that there's something very symbolic about Hurley and Locke talking turkey in this moment. That Locke is going to be, uh, the, the physical avatar, uh, for, uh, everything that's going wrong with the island towards the end of this, even if like what he was fighting for is coursing through the veins of so many of these people. Um, but Hurley is going to be on the opposite side of that. So this is another one of those like, uh, uh, backgammon moments, right? Uh, it's a more complicated game than checkers. So I, I just love that. I think I love what, what that visually, uh, looks like and what that thematically represents. And I also love the fact that this is the first time we see Locke, who again has been used incredibly sparingly from the end of season three through the beginning of season four. It's more about like the idea of John Locke than the appearance of him. And I do think it's very interestingly spooky that you have all this stuff going on with the cabin popping in and out. I also love sort of the callback to Dave of Hurley closing his eyes and denying like it's not real. It's not real. We'll get that later with Charlie as well. But I can imagine considering what Hurley went through with Dave of like, yeah, you know what? This stuff happens on the island all the time. Like, this is not my reality. Let me just try to push it out mentally and I can do it. Uh, and then for Locke to show up here, knowing that the very last time we saw him, he killed a person in cold blood. It is very creepy. It's really creepy. And Locke seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, he was limping around the last time we saw him. Uh, and now we are seeing him uh like just totally walking around uh hobbling around uh no more and he seems like he's pretty well and healed 
but he's also just like very creepily talking to Hurley about like, uh, you know, he's very nonchalant about what happened to Charlie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really get a big emotional reaction from Locke about Charlie. Well, because I think he is now sort of firmly in the camp of back where he was in season one of Boone was a sacrifice the island demanded. Yeah. Right? Like he feels like Walt in the form of the island had a purpose for him. He had work to do in a manner of speaking. And now he feels wholly devoted to the cause. And so he is now, I think sort of like forsworn the emotional connections in his life in a manner of speaking. It's like he joined a cult and he's like, all right, well that sucks about Charlie. He and I had our moments, but you know what? The island does what the island does. And that's why you need to join me here. Hugo though, manipulative AF on Locke's part, right? To be like, if we can't talk Jack out of it, then Charlie died for nothing. He does not give a lick about Charlie's death, but he know Hurley, he knows Hurley does. And so he's going to use that against him. Yeah. Um, so Hurley and Locke are going to link back up with the rest of the group. Saeed really does not like seeing Locke here. Yeah. And then they're linking up at the cockpit, which we have not seen in a long time. And I believe this actually might be the last time we see it. It's really cool. Um, there is this sense of passing through history in this episode, uh, and, and being back here at the cockpit for the first time since, gosh, season one, uh, is, is really amazing. And this is going to be the site of a lot of different reunions as the two parties are about to collide. Um, let's listen in because it's a, it's a really beautiful but sad scene. setting so i was watching this live with patrons the other day and uh like just like a lot of moments where i was just getting chills and like teary-eyed and i was like i'm not gonna cry on a stream <laughs> just <laughs> you wait josh it's gonna happen one of these days especially if we, if, we end, if we end up watching the end again like we did on twitch back during the 10-year anniversary i, I think just it's gonna I, re- I refused to do it and but it was hard and uh so much of that is sold by not just like your feelings about charlie um, but also just Jorge Garcia's performance, even watching Emily DeRaven react to it is, is really, really powerful. Even though this is like, I feel like the most reaction we get from Claire about yeah. Charlie. 
for no, uh, for a good amount. And it's interesting though because I think if you put yourself in the in the headspace of Claire, like this interaction, this entire scene, I think really informs the bad headspace she gets into. Because look at this, like everyone's reuniting. You know, Jin and Son are back together. Rose and Bernard have their cute little Rambo moment. Hell, even Juliet's hugging Alex. Like the others, the enemies are coming back together, and she has lost her lone support system. That can easily F somebody up, and it will. Uh, And so, unfortunately, though, to that point, there's a lot of reading between the lines. And yeah, this is the only, like, clear response we get to Charlie's loss, which I know, I know we're beating this drum over and over again, but considering how much that relationship... She was number one on his list, Josh! And we get this one scene, and that's pretty much all we get of Claire reacting to Charlie's death, at least from an explicit perspective. Yeah, um... But I think that the show is very, very wise in, um, man, I'm, the more that I go through this episode, I, I really love this one. Uh, I think that this is one of the very best lost premieres. Uh, I've, I've already like adjusted the score on the fly as I've been going here. <laughs> Started at a four. I've already moved it to a 4.1 and I'm trying to figure out why this isn't a perfect episode of lost for me. I, 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 I have a perfect, I have a reason why I don't, but we'll get to it later on. Cool, because I'm I'm struggling to figure it out. Uh, it, it may end up uh, finishing at a four point two for me. I just I I love it. It's emotional. It's great, and it's it's a really intelligently designed episode uh, because it's responding to through the looking glass in a brilliant way. Mm-hmm. It is such a it's such an excellent companion. Uh, it is it is really really powerfully reacting not just to the flash forward but to the death of the biggest character we've lost so far. Uh, and it also knows that because so much happened in Through the Looking Glass that we had, you know, if you were watching it in the real time, the summer off to, to like process it and stuff. But in terms of like the, the language of the show itself, we have not had this opportunity to really process and grieve Charlie. Uh, you know, we know that leaving is dangerous and bad. So that's the mystery, but the emotionality is like, we lost a friend. Uh, we lost a buddy, you know, we, we, we lost Charlie Pace. And, and so like, it's giving us a lot of emotional space to deal with that through Hurley, through Claire. But then it also gives us a moment to start meditating on what lost ultimate comments are going to be about the nature of life and death, which is, you know, by no coincidence or, or perhaps don't mis- mistake coincidence for fate, uh, that life and death is, you know, the name of one of the iconic themes running throughout the show. Because this next scene that we get in the flash forward, which is, uh, you know, it's going to be Hurley at Santa Rosa. He's going to meet Charlie. We'll listen into the whole thing in just a second. Mike, this is the merging of these ideas of the mystery of the flash forward, but also processing Charlie getting Dominic Monaghan back on the show to let us know that it's okay. There is something after all of this. Right, it's fine. He, you get a new haircut and you get a new wardrobe in the afterlife even. Yeah, so I I really love what's coming next. I think it's very, very emblematic of the whole show in the same way of the Hurley Cannonball. I think it's a very rich text, uh, this whole episode, but this scene especially. Uh, let's listen in. Flash forward, sound number five. <laughs> I'd watch out if I were you. What are you talking about, dude? There's a guy over there. Staring at you. What guy? That guy. Hey, man. Don't run. Early? Just... Just... Sit down. 
this door, okay? There's no need to freak out. No need to freak out? I'm trying to buy some jerky and a slushy, and suddenly you're standing there over by the ho-hos. You're dead. What do you expect me to do? Can we just we sit down? I may be in a mental hospital, but I know you're dead, and I'm not having an imaginary conversation with you. I am dead. But I'm also here. I can prove it. First, I remember when yeah. we saw uh, Dominic Monaghan back, I'm like, oh, really? He's still not dead? Because remember, Charlie technically almost died in season one as well. So you're like, you just can't get rid of this guy. But he is actually dead. You could tell that uh, they just pulled Dominic Monaghan off after, like, getting a haircut. I, mean, I, I, I would be, you know, reasonably confident, Josh, if this was just the clothes he wore off the street. Because he's not even wearing, like, the Charlie stuff that he died he in. He looks great. You know, yeah. if, uh, if the afterlife comes with such a makeover, like, that's exciting. So let's let's talk about that. Because how does this play into the season six of it all, right? Because the the assumption is, you know, once everyone dies, then they move into the sideways universe, the sort of purgatory that they all occupy until they're ready to move on together. Has Has Charlie populated that world yet? Or is he still sort of like stuck in between? And that's how he's able to be not only so well informed about everything, but be able to talk to Hurley here. There's the line from Christian Shepard towards the very, 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 very end of the end. Uh, now that we're talking about the end of the end, not the <laughs> beginning of the end. Um, or the beginning of the end. I don't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting lost. Uh, there's no now here, right? Uh, time is a flat circle, as a certain uh, Matthew McConaughey character would say. Uh, you know, there, there's, uh, there's a quality that uh, there's, there's a reasonable uh, amount of of belief in this idea. If you if you accept the sideways, that th- that's all happening, just sort of like because it's happening, right? Not because it's happening, uh, you know, at some point in the future or even happening now. Um, that it's just happening. But it's real. It's happening. Uh, and I think that, like, in the mortal plane that Hurley occupies, there is still more to be done. Time is still progressing. Uh, ghosts that are still sticking around for whatever reason that can't move on yet because purposes haven't been fulfilled 
are still there in that moment in time. I think we're talking about a couple of different layers of existence. I think we're talking yeah. about the mortal plane of the flesh and blood people who are still alive like a Hurley. Then you're talking about sort of like the spectral remnants of a character like uh, Charlie or, you know, Mr. Echo playing chess with Hurley later on. And then you're talking about the sideways, which is not of this world. That is of a, of a different place that you go to. Um, there can be, uh, you know, a, a spectral remnant here on Earth uh, where Charlie is still here as a ghost before zipping along to, to whatever comes next. And I, I love this. You know, I, I love this because, you know, Lost, especially in season two, has sort of cemented itself as a bit of a sci-fi show, and we haven't even gotten to the time travel of it all. But I think this is inherently different. I think this is dealing more so with the mystical. And we're going to double down with that as soon as next episode. And when we not only can hardly talk to ghosts, but we apparently have a brand new character who can commune with the dead as well. Like the show is really underlying the fact of, yeah, even though these characters are leaving us, you're really going to want to think about what happens after we die, because that's going to tie so much into how the series ends. And I feel like up to this point, loss has certainly been felt but not really circulated back upon in the way that it does here. And and so I think, much like we've talked about with this episode, it is so foundationally shifting uh, in such a big way. I mean, we should sort of talk about one of the more unresolved mysteries of this scene, which is that random guy shuffling by. Do you think he also has an ability? Uh, is his, you know, uh, on a mental state contribute to that? Was he just pointing to someone in the parking lot and Charlie happened to be in the way of that guy? What if he's yet? a ghost? You think that guy is a ghost? Yeah, what if he's also a ghost? That would be interesting. So it's not even that uh, Hurley can see, you know, island ghosts and people affiliated with the island ghosts in the form of Isabella. It's more so just like he just sees ghosts in general. Or maybe that guy's from the island. He died at a different time. Maybe he's, uh, that's a background 815-er. You know what it was? This is a guy from the Dharma Initiative who got purged by Ben and was in his robe the day of. And that's why he sort of is like showing up now of like... Oh man, I was going to get up and I was finally going to quit my job and, you know, go leave the island and go live out my days in retirement. What if, um, what if, you know, we know that there are these different hot spots? Right. That's mm-hmm. what uh, we learned. Uh, Richard in, Malkin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what we learned in season two. There's different like spots around the world. What if Santa Rosa is one of these hot spots? We know that LA has one of these hot spots because of the, um, the, 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 the lamppost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what if Santa Rosa is something of a hot spot? Ghosts come here. Uh, we're seeing not just Charlie, but we know Mr. Echo will come. We know that, uh, or now we're speculating. What if this robed guy? is a ghost mike what if dave was a ghost the whole time oh no oh what if, hurley's been, what if hurley's been able to talk to ghosts for much longer than we know it could be interesting that could be very interesting and what if the reason why matthew abaddon and winmore at large wanted to move hurley from that spot is because they had some sort of awareness of it being a hot spot and said yeah. oh yeah no we can get you out of here so that he doesn't they don't want him communing with the island anymore yeah could be could be. Now, I know that uh, introducing Dave as a ghost uh, has uh, definitely... Oh, yeah, uh, but that, uh, how does it, that deal into the whole time-traveling Dave marrying It dings up my, my uh, time-traveling Dave marrying Libby theory, but, uh, you know, I'm, will, I'm willing to be open. I'm willing to be flexible here, Mike. Yeah, because I do wonder why we keep going back to Santa Rosa other than Hurley just, like, being an alum of there. But I do love this idea that for some strange reason, this particular... And maybe, uh, you know, back in the day, they built a mental hospital of it to sort of, like, obfuscate the obvious weird things yeah. that were going on. Of like, no, 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 these people are just not all there. That's why they're acting strange. It's compelling. Food for thought. 
Um, all right. So back on the island, Claire is asking uh, Hurley what happened. How did Charlie die? And Hurley very tearfully, he was trying to help us. Uh, and it's a really t- like you see Saeed, you see Desmond, you even see Locke like lightly processing this. Um, Locke is uh, so deep in the process, in fact, Mike, that he doesn't see Jack coming because Jack comes in, knocks Locke out flat on his ass, takes the gun, the rusty uh-huh. gun out of Locke's pocket. Pointed at him. Juliet's telling Jack, like, hey, please don't shoot him in front of everybody. And Locke's like, you're not going to shoot me, Jack, any more than I was going to. And then he pulls the trigger. Yep. And Locke's like, and you can see the genuine look of surprise on Locke's face of, oh, okay. I mean, I knew I could do that stuff. But you, Jack, that surprises me a little bit. And it it surprised all of us as well. Because, again, Jack up to this point was sort of like the rah-rah unity guy. But I think we're already starting to see Jack as a person. His attitudes are beginning to change, right? The the sort of codes and rules that he has set for himself for so many years. I think even though the death of John Locke is more so going to be the profound effect that pushes Jack into the way he ends the series, I feel like his time on the island is starting to teach him, like, rules are made to be broken in a way. Sometimes you have to live between the lines to to help the good of everybody. And I think that's what uh, Jack is feeling right now of, like, I'm so fueled with ecstasy and rage that, yes, murder is bad, but if it helps to purge the earth of the perennial, you know, issue that is John Locke, all the better to do it. He's going to splat this dude's brains on the ground in front of all of these poor gawkers. You know, (laughs) it's kind of messed up, man. Uh, But Locke's such a dick, too. I think, like, Locke being, like, just having the audacity of being here. Like, Locke, you can't have it all these ways. You know I love John Locke. Do you not remember this is the guy who shows up to the Boone roll covered in Boone's blood as well? This this this, man has no tact. Yes, this this is a big, this is like big Boone roll mood, John Locke, right now, which is, uh, I love the character so much, but if we're just talking about like personal demerits i gotta <laughs> slap him with one uh like it's just inappropriate and then jack is not not coming away too squeaky clean either but it's such a good scene it's just yeah. so great and i remember watching this so i uh because it was such an event um i uh i drove straight to syracuse new york from work that day wow uh i i went right up and 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 uh spent the spent the next couple of days with my friends who still lived up there uh and watched this episode with them because we just couldn't bear the thought of not watching this episode together uh and we all just gasped when jack pulled out the gun yeah uh, and pulled the trigger we're like oh shit and like it doesn't matter that it doesn't work what matters is jack was there that I mean, he was what, what at matters that place is that jack wanted it to work Jack wanted yeah. to kill unless he was super eagle-eyed and saw that there were no bullets in the chamber and thought he was just making a move. Jack had every intention of shooting John Locke in the point face. blank in the head yeah. right there. Yes. Crazy. Absolutely wild. All right. The scene continues. Uh, really, really uh, memorable scene coming up here. Uh, we'll start with the argument. We'll end with... Uh, I don't know about the argument so much as like the plea, uh, you know, the emotional argument, Um, the the hot rage filled argument versus the emotional argument. Let's listen in sound number six. Do you know what he did? Yes, I know what he did. All I did. All I have ever done has been in the best interest of all of us. Are you insane? I know I 
I have a lot of explaining to do, but I never did anything to hurt any of you. I even risked my life to tell you that there was a traitor in your midst. She helped us, John. All you ever did was blow up every chance we had of getting off this island. You killed Naomi. Well, technically, he didn't kill her yet. Yes, he did. She just died. She didn't give you up, John. She covered for us. And she fixed this. They're on their way. She didn't cover for anyone. She wants her people to come here. And trust me, when they do, we had better be far away from here. I'm going to the barracks. The others abandoned them. It's the only place on the island with any form of security right now. It'll have to do until I can think of something else. Until then, if you want to live, you need to come with me. No one's going anywhere with you, John. Because they're not crazy. He's not crazy. What about Charlie? Charlie went down to that place so we could all be rescued. Whatever he did down there, it worked. But then something must have happened. He must have heard something before he... But he changed his mind. Because the last thing he did was to warn us that the people in that boat are not who they said they were. to my friend listening to Charlie <sighs> it was just so sad it's just beautiful it's it's so so beautiful though I will say I think what unfortunately tempers this a bit is uh, John Locke's unintentional Terminator reference if, if you want to live come with me yeah <laughs> Come with me if you want to live. Um, but, uh, the, the like relitigation of Charlie's death, watching it happen again, and Hurley making like a strong emotional argument that's also logical. Yeah. That's like, that was Charlie. Charlie went down there. That's our friend. That's our guy. He wrote a message before he died, uh, that indicates in the short time that he had left that indicates that Dealing with these people is a dangerous mistake. And why aren't we listening to that? So I'm not going with John Locke. I'm going with Charlie. Exactly. John Locke just happens to agree. We're sort of going the same way at that point. I also love the contrast between the idea of I'm listening to my friend. I'm listening to Charlie, considering that the immediate scene prior to this, he is not listening to Charlie. He is refusing to listen to Charlie. 
who is talking to him, just seeing how far Hurley falls as a character. Not necessarily falls. Uh, other characters will fall much, much farther in the flash forwards. But I think showing how Hurley's sort of attitude has changed all that, we're going to find that out very soon where he's like, yeah, going with Locke was a bad idea. I mean, Locke, like you said, his argument isn't necessarily working here. Uh, his, of course, faulty claim of all I've ever done has been in the best interest of all of us. Uh, Hatch, John, I think says otherwise. And also your opinions to not press the button as well says otherwise. Really fun factoid here. With Kate coming back to the group, Josh, this is the first time since the season two finale that all of 815 is back together. Yeah. Every single other episode, everyone has been scattered to the winds. And I would, you know, bargain that this is probably the last time that 815 is all going to be together. Because as we split off here, there are some very interesting things I grabbed from Lostpedia. Speaking of Locke, because of the events that that fall in seasons four and five, this is going to be the last time that, like, Rose and Bernard and Desmond ever see John Locke again. You know, they're going to see, quote-unquote, John Locke, but they're never going to see John Locke again. Yeah. But something that was pointed out to me that I am stunned by, Josh, this, chronologically speaking, is the last time that Benjamin Linus and Juliet Burke share a scene together. Whoa, are you serious? Yeah, because think about it. Like, they're in their separate Obviously, camps. they have flashback stuff. They have flashback stuff, including this season. But, you know, they yeah. split up into their separate camps. Ben's going to leave the island. And, you know, he's going to... Juliet's going to be wow, in the 70s. Yeah. He's going to be in the modern timeline. So for such a seminal relationship in season three, this is the last time these two characters oh, see each wild. other. that's wild. That's uh, wild. That that did not even occur to me until you said that. That's crazy. Um yeah, you know, um, <laughs> it's this is a momentous episode, is what I'm saying, man. Like, this is this is this this is a, a in a in a manner of speaking, this is a this is an episode one of like a whole new show. Uh, Lost takes on a totally different energy uh, from here on. Um, we've got no real time for wheel spinning anymore. No. And when uh, and we'll, when we we'll do spin, spin, spin wheels, yeah, we'll spin a wheel in a, a long while from now. But even when we do, that changes. Yeah, when the we game. spin wheels moving forward, it's a very big deal. Uh, so it's 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 really uh, it's a really significant episode this is a very significant scene it's hurley making a huge leadership decision that obviously he's going to say in a second here that he regrets um but you know he uh he's making a choice and it's you know i think it's not it's it's not right to like pin what happens next on hurley by any stretch of the imagination because i think a big piece of this is the communication breakdown it's yep. understandable Locke just killed a guy going to be hard to reconcile that in the heat of the moment yeah I mean, to the point uh, where even rose who seemed to really like be in team lock ever since sos of like let's see eye to eye about the, the magic of this island is like nope i'm wanna, not going anywhere I'll, with that man. i want to stay on this island but not with that guy please yeah yeah, uh, that was that's a really great moment where Bernard's like, I know you want to stay. If you want to go with Locke, I'll go. She goes, I'm not going anywhere with that guy. Can I just uh, say, I'm also very happy. You know, we got Rose and Bernard in the last two episodes of season three. I'm They're going to have some very fun moments here. Like, I'm going to love coming up when uh, Bernard and Jin sort of have the, like, husband talk. There's some there's some very nice use of Rose and Bernard in season four. They're very welcome presences. Sawyer's going to go with Locke, and that's a surprise. Same thing I've always done. Kate surviving. Yeah, well, I think this also shows, uh, you know, this goes back to, I think, Kate's very blistering comment to Sawyer about, like, nothing's waiting for you off the island. I wonder how much of that is reverberating in his head of, like, 
my life is on this island. Also, I mean, John Locke did uh, lead him to conquer one of his demons, as blood-curdingly as it may have been. Maybe there's a part of that that allows Sawyer to, to follow Locke as well. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, but he's he's going to go, and Kate's upset, but Kate's sticking around. So this is... Uh, we're saying goodbye to 815, yeah, in it's, a really real way. It's so... It's seismic, is the way yeah. that I would describe it. Like, yeah. just the image of these two parties standing separately and then the rain sort of coming in to cleanse them all and around the cockpit as well like they were brought together by this plane crash but inevitably philosophical differences have split them up in a way that has never been done before and it is magnanimous for the show to the point where this is really going to occupy the space for the first half of the season is like what jack's camp does versus what Locke's camp does it's it's a big big way to start the season by essentially splitting your cast in two and saying, all right, well, one side's going to win out here, but do they really win out in the end? Yeah. So they all start going their separate ways. We leap forward into the future one last time, back to the future, uh, to close out Hurley's emotional arc in this episode with a, a, a little game we like to call horse, Mike. And it's got nothing to do with that horse that Kate saw in the jungle. Let's no, listen to it. Maybe, maybe it did. Maybe that was another ghost that Hurley saw. You ever miss? Jack? Yeah, I was uh, on my way back from a consult. Thought I'd drop by and pay you a visit. Horse? You're on. So, consult, huh? Does that mean you're back doing surgical stuff? Yeah. H. Reporters leaving you alone? Yeah. Still have to sign some autographs when I go out for coffee. Thinking about growing a beard. You look weird with a beard, dude. That's H.O. So. What are you really doing here, Jack? I was just checking on you, seeing if everything was okay. You checking to see if I went nuts? If I was gonna tell? Are you? You're up. Nah, you win. I, uh. I gotta run. Great seeing you early. Sorry. I'm sorry I went with Locke. I should have stayed with you. It's water under the bridge, man. Jack. I think he wants us to come back. Hurley. He's going to do everything he can. We're never going back. Never say never, dude. 
the clear takeaway from this is that Jack sucks at basketball, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, he was too busy getting his ass kicked on the basketball court as a kid. Uh, to, uh, <laughs> from White Rabbit. To yeah, learn could you imagine? Like, it was like, oh, you lost the game for us, Jack. We're going to beat you and spark us up. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, interestingly, so going to the horse game, uh, Jack gets ho and ho is actually shows up prominently throughout this episode you know you heard Ho-hos. yeah you're the, with the ho-hos i believe uh when hurley's standing in front of a painting the letters ho are displayed behind him and h and o are the eighth and 15th letters of the alphabet so How about it, that yeah so it's a fun little callback to the numbers i mean this is also a fantastic fantastic contrast to the end of season three because i mean i don't think we know well i forgot do we know at this point that three years have passed between uh between you know the oceanic six arriving and you know no definitely definitely not and are we are we sure about where this lands in the timeline it's a good question i mean i do wonder it, it sounds like a lot of like you know hurley i mean it seems like the oceanic six are still relatively in the news that, you know, they're talking about, like, getting autographs going out for coffee. So I would say it's probably within the first year of coming back, I would assume. Uh, so then it's, you know, a fantastic contrast as to Jack yelling at Hurley, we are never going back there. And we all know what happens at the end of season three. Jack's attitude is going to change very quickly. And so it's almost like this idea of, like, not necessarily Hurley incepting the idea into Jack, but this idea that, you know, much like uh, Jack had an idea that Hurley was going to come around to that he apologizes to Jack about, now Hurley's going to have an idea that Jack's going to come around to. Yeah. Try to see if there's a, a, if I can quickly determine where this takes place in the timeline, uh, the flash forward portions of well, beginning uh, of the yeah, end. Well, while, while Josh is looking up, I'll just extol more praise onto Jorge Garcia's performance, uh, just because I love him seeing through the BS, you know, really getting to, okay, Jack, you really didn't want to just see me. Uh, That really goes into, like, the awkwardness that's going to happen with the Oceanic Six, right? Like, they're all going to show up to uh, Hurley's party at the end of Season 4, but really they're going to start breaking apart, and we start to see it here as well. I particularly love Jorge Garcia's delivery of Europe, where it's just, like, so understated, but also so sad, like... Yeah, this guy isn't really your friend. He's clear for he's here for an ulterior motive, and Hurley is just so like concentrated on the game to deal with that heartbreak. And also, uh, I really like the fact that we watch this after the missing pieces because now, Josh, these are two characters that have told Jack never say never. Yeah, uh, January two thousand six uh, is when the beginning of the ends flash forwards take place. So about a year after they have returned from the island okay interesting so i guess everything with the, the fruit stand so hurley only started seeing charlie a year after everything yeah interesting mm-hmm. i wonder i wonder yeah. what if there was any sort of trigger for that so he's going to be in santa rosa for about another year okay uh, yeah yeah i guess yeah because they're going to break him out Mm-hmm. yeah so he sticks around through when do they get out let's see get out uh they leave they start heading back uh, uh are getting back around in 2007 right 2007 but what month is what i'm trying to find out um hard hard to say but yeah so he's gonna be in there for about a year uh so yeah it's been about a year he'll be there for about another year or so uh it's a long time yeah. it's a long time 
for for poor for poor her. And I mean, even longer when you take into account that he had been there beforehand, right? Yeah. It's almost like uh, you know, moving back into your old home and, and staying there for a while to the point where you sort of uh, own the courts. Luckily, no Dave there to sort of uh, yell at everyone else who is playing, but. Yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting thing. And again, like you said, sort of sets up a mystery of, OK, what the hell happened? Because, uh, you know, Hurley is going to eventually leave the island, despite the fact that he is opposing leaving the island right now. Now he's apologizing to Jack for going with Locke. What happens? And that's what really, like you said, all these out of sequence flash forwards are going to set up as to how do we get here or what's sort of the end result? And really, uh, there's no place like home is going to be the huge through line as to, yeah. well, here's the how everything happened to get people to that place. Yeah. Um, all right. So we end the episode back on the island. And now it's kind of like a, a segue into what's coming next. You know, we've closed out the Hurley story for the week. And now we're going to chill with Jack and Kate. And frankly, Charlie, like the ghost of Charlie yeah. to a certain degree. We we come back with Jack and Kate are by the cockpit and they're remembering their friend. And then... Uh, Things suddenly get very, very real. Let's listen in. Are you thinking of Charlie? Feels like a hundred years ago that we came out here together. How did this happen? Thunder. Come on. Daniel Faraday, officially uh, on the board. In all of his skinny tie glory, here he is, out with the old, in with the new. Because, yeah, we, we bid farewell, at least Jack and Kate do, to half of their group. And now they're about to welcome in some brand new people. I mean, this was definitely, obviously, the big... There were a lot of big questions coming out of this episode. Oh, my God, Hurley can talk to Ghost. What does that mean? You know, what happened to cause, uh, you know, Hurley to apologize to Jack and to leave the island? But I think the biggest one, at least initially coming out of this episode, was, who's that guy? Yeah. Well, I knew that Jeremy Davies had been cast because he's another actor who I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I, You know, I'd kept tabs on all of the people who had been cast as the as the freighter. Uh, the freighter folk, uh, certainly of the four main freighters. Um, really exciting, uh, to see, to see him land, but he kind of like shows up here with sort of like this sense of like, uh, like almost like dangerous normalcy. So it's mm-hmm. a very different version of Daniel yeah, Faraday than nary, we'll ever see again. Uh, a harried blink coming out of Daniel Faraday, which feels very against character. Did you say a hairy blink? Harried, like he's just like blinking very like frequently and worriedly. I didn't fully understand. Uh, Harry blink. 
<laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, no, no, no. He's, his name is not Harry Blink, but maybe that was one of his uh, pseudonyms that he probably pursues in his scientific But the studies. way he says, are you Jack, like, makes it seem like this is a guy who has, like, uh, like all the answers, seems like he's a threat, uh, has a bit of stability to him, and uh, he does have a lot of answers, and there's ways in which he's a threat, but stability, ah, no, maybe uh, not his strong suit. I mean, we're going to see that next episode when he finds out that Oceanic Game One Five dies and cries for what he appears as no reason. Right. So, like this, this man's stability immediately goes out the window. I think it's also interesting in that, like. Yes, Jack did tell his name to Minkowski, but you also wonder, like, did he already know Jack's name? Uh, and if so, what does that necessarily mean? Are they, how much does Ben's threat hold true? It's a big opener for, like you said, a huge introduction for not only how important these characters are going to be for season four, but, but for forward. the next little while. Yes. Yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna join the group. Yeah. You know, they're, these are, these are, we're part of the, they're part of the cast now. Uh, you know, book two is opening up and we're getting some very important new people on the board. So next week we'll really dive deep into them. I, maybe a hot take or it's a medium take. I don't think next week's episode's very, not that it's not very good. It's not. It's not like excellent. It's not next no, year. I, I, I'll agree. I mean, I, I said it before. I'll flat out say that I think the flashback is much, much better than the on island. You know, stuff. I think it, I think it's fun, and I'm and 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 it's it's totally fine. It's a it's a little bit slow. There's some things that are really really great. Um, I may also totally reverse this opinion. I know this is like my <laughs> conventional thinking about confirmed dead, where we're going next week. What I'm so pumped about is like to talk about these characters in like vivid specific detail starting yes. next week. I'm so. I mean, I, again, great. I've, I've said it in the past. I'll keep saying it. How much I love the freighter folk, particularly, unfortunately, the main three guys. I'm actually very excited to take a deep dive into Charlotte because I think much like Libby, there's a lot of stuff we can try to fill in between the lines. Another character that I think, unfortunately, gets underutilized. But I'm excited to see these people. Season four is a little bit like the end of season three. Of A lot of it revolves around like, oh, can we really trust them? But now that we know we can trust them from a hindsight perspective, I'm excited to see like, what this introduction to the characters is going to be like, and specifically like how they end up fitting in with the main group, because they're going to be a big formative part of it for the weeks to come. Um, all right, let's get into some feedback. We'll do some quick hits because we're running, uh, running swiftly, running out of time on my end at least, Mike. So uh, we'll do some quick hits on the feedback. This is from Daniel Brennan, who says, "I'm not sure if it's too early to pose this question, but who did you guys want to be in the Oceanic Six back in 2008? Uh, I remember talking to friends about this so much throughout season four as people were slowly revealed. Are you happy?" with the chosen group to leave the island. Um, I, I think we can certainly put a pin in that last question. I will say some people that I wanted on there, I wanted Saeed on there because I think we'll get to it with The Economist that I was so happy that Saeed left the island because I think of the people remaining, he was one of the ones who had like some of the most unfulfilled stuff off island all the naughty yeah. stuff, which little did I know what would happen with the naughtiest stuff. Right. But at the moment, I was like, he has someone to, to go back to. Uh, so I know he was probably number one on my list at the moment, I'm trying to think. I mean, I wanted Desmond to leave the island. Of course, that's also one of the great things about season four, right? It's like, even when you think that the Oceanic Six is revealed and like all the twists are done, there's still one final twist and there's no place like home that Desmond is sort of the seventh member of the Oceanic yeah, and Six. And Lapidus, he gets out of there too. And yeah, so there's sort of like there are vestigial limbs to the Oceanic Six, which, which I absolutely love. You know, actually, Juliet is probably number two, right? Like, I really, really, really wanted Juliet to leave the island as much as Juliet herself did, though. I think, as we talked about before, in retrospect, it ends up sort of, uh, I wouldn't say it, it ends up being the better option that she doesn't leave the island, but she certainly goes down uh, a desirable path that if she had left the island, we wouldn't be able to explore that. So, you know, no regrets from that perspective. I wanted Charlie. Well, he's dead, though. <laughs> uh, 
Sawyer, I think I would have been interested in, but I, I think it's better that he stays. I definitely think it's better that he stays. Uh, Stefan asks us, who do you go with, Jack or Locke? I mean, are we talking like right now? I don't know. Um, if you are in, uh, so let's say you're, you're part of the radio tower crew. So you're coming, uh, with, with Jack. We came with Jack. Are you leaving with Jack or are you leaving with Locke? Where are you on that line? I'm, I'm leaving with Jack. Uh, cause look, I know that Hurley makes this fantastic emotional plea, but the fact of the matter is, as much as Hurley might tout that he's not with Locke, Locke's gonna be the leader of that group. So I very much take the Rose's perspective of like, maybe I don't necessarily trust the freighters, but at the same time, I am not hanging around with John Locke any day of the week. No, thank you. So I am perfectly fine going with Jack. And if the opportunity comes to leave the island, I just might be like, no, thank you. I'm okay. I'll hang out here. I have a bunch of papayas I can eat. I think just realistically, given everything that I've seen at this point, if I'm a gawker, uh, I think I have to go with Jack. Uh, yeah. You know, I think I think I got to go with Jack, even though I love Charlie and like I, I and Hurley's emotional uh, appeal is a big one. I don't think that I can go with like murdery John Locke. No, that's the thing is like when you go with John Locke, you're going specifically with John Locke. Yeah. Not with Charlie. Yeah. You know? So it's so and John Locke, especially from a gawker perspective, has proven himself to be like a a sketchy presence at best. And so even when he pulls out the, oh, I did this for the good of everybody crap for the umpteen time, you're like, yeah, 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 I'm done with you, Locke. I don't want to necessarily live in the presence of someone who might knife me in the back if they think I come in the way of their greater purpose. Yeah. Uh, Brendan Fitzpatrick has a theory about why Sawyer goes with Locke. He says, Sawyer clearly only goes with Locke because of Hurley. I only really picked up on it in this most recent viewing, but based on Sawyer being on the beach with Hurley at the beginning of the episode when he finds out about Charlie, and given that special love and respect that Sawyer has for Hugo, it would make sense that he'd stick with wherever Hurley is going. I love that idea. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, that it's like also it. about like him sort of, uh, you know, surviving. Or maybe I don't know about leaving. the only reason, uh, but I, uh, a reason for sure. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, that he feels like a little protective of Hugo and he feels like, uh, well, at least, you know, I know Locke that I could get between the two of them and need be. And Sawyer's going to play a huge role in in Locke's group as well. I think uh, for many reasons, it's good that Sawyer is there to maybe help Locke a bit through all the stuff that's going to happen. Speaking of Hurley, Dallin Servo notes uh, six dudes in this episode. Mike, we are up to 177 <laughs> total dudes. Six dudes feels actually a little below average for a Hurley episode. Yeah. Uh, this is not quite. A, I mean, it's a very serious episode, right? So, uh, we got, uh, you know, you got as many, uh, dudes as you can get. Brennan Fitzpatrick asks, is there any way that the ghost Charlie that Hurley sees is actually Jacob? Well, do you think it was like Jacob trying all these tactics until he finally is like, fine, I guess I'll mm. do it myself, Thanos style, and then shows up going onto the airport? I don't know. That's hard for me to fully believe. Uh, I don't, I don't, know. Know. I, I don't know. I like the idea much more that it's, because it, it makes it makes me sad if Jacob is trying to answer questions as Charlie. Yeah. You know, like if you say like, oh, no, I didn't go because I didn't want to cause any drama. Like it actually makes me very sad if that's not actually Charlie's answer. But someone being like, now, what would Charlie say to this if someone was playing Charlie instead? Something I never knew. Lindy Steiner points this out that Randy Nations is the guy filming the scene of Hurley crashing the car. Uh, why? Maybe just because like at this point, Randy Nations is like, oh, this is juicy. Wait, so was did he just happen to be Maybe there, just there at the yeah. time? Does good he work timing. at that frame store? Yeah, good timing. 
<laughs> but then, so then I guess at the time, what did the box factory thing not work out for him? I don't know. Maybe it, it you know, it got shut down after Hurley apparently died on Oceanic 815. I find that interesting as well that he says like, oh yeah, now that I come back, all the money is going to be gone. I mean, I don't know. I don't think that's how it works. Uh, I mean, at, at least if he wanted the money back and he was not dead, like they could very easily be like, oh yeah, here's your money back. Uh, yeah. Unless he put in his will explicitly, like if I die, give away the money. And if I happen to pop back a couple of years later, please do not give it back to me at, under any circumstances. Uh, one last one, uh, a tiebreaker on the missing pieces. Last week, we wanted to uh, leave it to you to determine which is the better uh, missing piece, Jin throwing the temper tantrum or uh, King of the Cat castle uh by a by a nose uh gin throwing a temper tantrum wins but literally by a vote so it's so close that you know you could still basically just consider it a tie i'm honestly surprised about that happily surprised uh i thought i was fighting a losing battle with uh with king of the castle no i mean really split down the middle really much like much like the survivors of oceanic 815 mike split down the middle well now we have our official ranking and not a moment too soon as we move on from the missing pieces officially into season four yeah um all right let's do the 23 points uh i've got two mvps to give out you've got three you've got two lvps i've got three and these are our first official points on the board for on the board for season four <laughs> all right well i gotta start with the man of the hour here let's start with hurley uh if only you know uh for just a powerhouse performance from jorge garcia but like all the all the hurley stuff in this episode is great Game changer. He becomes, you know, has a brand new role both on the island and off the island that is going to change the series for episodes to come. And Jorge Garcia arguably puts in his best episode yet. So really, if if not an MVP, the MVP of the episode in yeah, my book. I think the MVP of the episode is is right. My first one will go to Hurley's buddy, Charlie. Yeah, he's a ghost, but he slaps some sense into Hurley. And I think, uh, you know, is is speaking on behalf of the island and is speaking on behalf of the people they left behind. Uh, and it's also just a, a, a really nice moment that uh, I think helps us move along, you know, move on with the uh, with the death of Charlie. And I also just love how his presence hangs over the entire proceeding. So mm-hmm. big fan of the use of Charlie in this episode. Let's give him a season four MVP point. I don't think that there's going to be another occasion to do it. Well, yeah, let me give a point to someone who we probably will never have another occasion to give an MVP point here to. I'm going to give one to Naomi, uh, because, look, if she does not make that call in the end to Minkowski, there's a good chance the freighters do not find their way to the island and the landscape of season four changes completely. And so I want to give her kudos that in her last moments, not only does she get the location for the survivors, but as we talked about, she may also get a dig on them on the way out by sort of giving the hint of, hey, send Kimi and the Mercs here and do away with them. Um, yeah, I'm going to just skip ahead to an LVP because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Naomi an LVP for dying. All right. So it's a wash at the end of the day. It's a wash for Naomi. I mean, like, I'm very impressed with the with the feats of strength. But at the same time, like, I kind of do feel like the energy exertion, like... uh all the doubling back and the climbing of the tree. Maybe just talk to the doctor. The doctor seemed pretty legit. Yeah. I mean, look, Naomi's a, a mysterious but yet odd character who does weird things. Never heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, it's a, a unique to her character on this show, I think. Uh, so I'm going to, we'll, we'll give Naomi a wash. Give Sawyer an MVP point for the reasons outlined. Yeah. Uh, I think Sawyer's a true friend in this episode. Uh, he's climbing. James Very- Ford climbing up, uh, coming out of his shell. Very low-key Sawyer episode, but I agree. Every time we see him, it's great. And I am going to step a little bit out of my shell because as Stefan Johnson brought up over the course of our Season 3 feedback show, 
I have not been terribly kind to Cade in terms of my MVP LVP points. But friends, I'm turning over a new leaf at this moment. I'm going to give a point to Kate. Now, How look, come? Why? This is this is the umpteenth time that she has struck out on her own and disobeyed Jack's orders, but she did the right thing. You know, she knew there was a dummy trail. She followed the correct trail, and she's able to convince Naomi to radio in on their location. Yes, and I'm imagining the reason why she may earn an LVP point is because of her just terrible way of handling the call. But I think actually Kate does a great job this episode. She actually gets success for striking out on her own here. So I'm going to give her kudos for it. I'm going to take a point from Kate. <laughs> Josh is just like completely neutralizing not all on the purpose. Phrase. Not on purpose. I just like the like the picking up the phone and then hanging up instantly is so bad. <laughs> it's just so bad to me. We'll let the record show here, Stefan, that I am the one who gave Kate the MVP point and Josh the LVP you point. You know how right? I feel about Kate. I let love Kate. Let the record Kate. show. I'm a huge Kate fan. I love Evangeline Lilly. Uh I ha- I I just it's also representative of I think that this is a hard episode to give LVPs in like a- it really is it was very much evocative to me of greatest hits as yeah. we get into the LVP section of like well everyone at least does like interesting things that there aren't many people that I'm like you idiot slash evil person right. you get LVP points right uh, like I feel pretty good about this one compared to greatest hits but it's still hard Kate yeah I think uh, like stealing the thing taking the walkie talkie. Uh, and then, um, you know, running off into the jungle and, uh, hanging up on Minkowski is just a weird look. Um, I may have been inclined to give an LVP point to the person that you're going to give your first LVP point to, uh, if not for the fact that you were going to give that LVP point. So I figured I would throw one at Kate. Yeah, let's go with the person that Kate stole the walkie-talkie from. Like I said, this is not a fantastic episode for Jack, especially coming off of the highs of Through the Looking Glass, considering he gets, you know, the walkie-talkie stolen, he's wrong about the fake trail. Uh, you know, Jack ends up with a, a smidge of egg on his face in egg, this episode. Egg. Oh, no. Uh, sorry to, to, to you know, poke that, Josh. But, uh, <laughs> not, you know, not certainly enough. And we're going to meet a guy in a few episodes who's great with eggs. Uh, but certainly mm-hmm. not to, you know, just, uh, you know, to smudge him completely of all the great stuff that he's done before. But I will say this is not a fantastic episode for Jack as it relates to, like, him being the leader of 815. Yeah. Uh, I get that. I think it's a very good Matthew Fox episode. Yes. Uh, and a great episode for Jack as a character. But in terms of, like, the way that we handle out MVPs and LVPs, I think. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I already said Naomi. I've already said Kate. I'll give my last one because it's a good counterpoint to Jack. Uh, Locke. Nobody's the, in the right here. For like the big boon roll energy. Like, you know, like him coming out and just like sort of like uh, coming out and just coming not out. being like very, uh, I don't know, very delicate given everything. And I understand the severity of the situation, but uh, it's just, uh, it's just all of this is very weird. Very, very yeah. weird. And this was, so this, to your point, it was very tough for me to find another person to give LVP points here to. It is with reserve and a little bit of regret that in his premiere episode, I'm going to give an LVP point to Matthew Abaddon. Because uh, I think he does sort of lose his chill a bit when he's talking to Hurley, trying to put up this guy. And as soon as Hurley, like, pokes at him a little bit, he goes full scary and just like, what do you know about them? Uh, I'm excited to explore more about him in the future. But I will say... Sort of like what you said about Kate. I think he has a little bit of difficulty here keeping his cool uh, in his premiere episode. And so I'm going to dock him a point here, regretfully so. Yeah, uh, I think that that, uh, that tracks just because he's he's evil guy doing evil things. And he's, he's not even able to convince Hurley. And maybe he should have just brought a business card. Like, yeah, print, just make a business card, dude. 
That's fine. All right. So the season four rankings as they currently stand, you know, we're still at the point where we can do this. Uh, it's not gotten too complicated yet. Hurley, Charlie, and Sawyer all have positive single points. Jack, Locke, Matthew, Abaddon, negative one each. Kate and Naomi have zeroed out. So they are not officially on the board. Uh, so we've got ourselves a, a veritable oceanic six of MVP LVPs so far, Mike. Oh, imagine that group of six. Uh, yeah. Hurley, Charlie, Sawyer, Jack, Locke, and Matthew Abaddon walk into a bar. Uh, I cannot imagine the conversation. Well, first off, Jack is going like straight for the sauce many, many times. Over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's get to the rankings. Um, I have talked myself into thinking that the beginning of the end is in the same spirit of the episodes that we have been talking about. Uh, a, a perfect episode of Lost for me. I'm giving it a 4.2. And in fact, Mike, what I will say is, uh, if greatest hits is like the, is the prologue to through the looking glass, then the beginning of the end is the through the looking glass epilogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think to have a, a, Char- a Charlie, Jack, Hurley, uh, one, two, three punch. Uh, is, is just what the doctor ordered. Uh, it's really, really well told. It's a very strong premiere. I think it does everything that it absolutely needs to do. I love it. And I loved it more on the rewatch. I loved it more even talking it through. Um, I have a lot of emotional, sentimental reasons for picking this one, uh, being that this was, uh, I think this was like the last episode that we as a group in Syracuse did watch because I came up to, to go and see it with all of my friends. Uh, And I don't think that we ever quite did that again. Uh, at least nothing as memorable as that. So you you split apart much like the 815ers. Yeah. Uh, so I have a lot of fondness for this one, a lot of nostalgia for this. This episode and I just think that it delivers on all of the promise of where we left off in season three in in perfect fashion and I also noted that I I had given I think uh either a four or a four point one uh to uh, I think it was a four to tale of two cities right and so I I definitely felt like it was better than a tale of two cities so I yes. wanted to push it past that so originally I, I pushed it from a four to a four point one but the more I talk about like I just don't see a reason why this isn't just like an exquisite episode of Lost for me. So I'm, I'm giving it that 4.2. I agree as well, which is why it's definitely at least a 4 for me. Uh, so I, I agree. When I went to sort of where to put this, I compared it against the other season premieres because, again, they really, up to this point, really do seem like an animal of their own. And I liked it more than A Tale of Two Cities. I really enjoyed A Tale of Two Cities. I gave it a 3.9, but... Nobody did anything in this episode that annoyed me as much as Jack does on Hydra Island. And this also is more of an ensemble episode than A Tale of Two Cities, which I give it commendations for. So that pushed it past it. I gave, I gave, uh, what was it? Uh, what was season two premiere? Man of Science, Man of Faith. Uh, I was confused with Let Together Die Alone. I gave that a 4.1. I think I like this a, a smidge, a little bit less okay. than Man of Science, Man of Faith, just because I feel like Man of Science, Man of Faith, uh, really evokes like that horror element. It really is like Lost does a horror episode. Totally. And I feel like it's done so well. And I think the one thing for me that is, is making it, uh, maybe a little bit more lacking compared to Man of Science, Man of Faith, and even in some respects, The Tale of Two Cities, is that like there is not a capital C classic scene in the beginning of the end that for me pushes it into like 4.1 4.2 territory so that being said i still sold for a four which are extremely high ratings especially for a season premiere and it looks like uh the hatchlings were 
sort of in agreement. They ultimately averaged out to a 3.8, which gives a straight 4.00 overall. And they really range from like the uh, the low threes to a perfect 4.2. So it seemed like in general, everyone feels We're high at on least, this one. Everyone's yeah. high on this one. It's just like, how high are you? Uh, exactly. It, it, yeah. feels, it feels like at least a pretty good episode of Lost. But yeah, I, I really loved getting to go over this episode. It really reminds me of like the fantastic transitional weirdness that season four has to offer. Yeah. To your point, Next week is a little bit of an odd duck as well. I do not think we will certainly be as high on this, but we get to talk about freaking Daniel Faraday and Charlotte and Miles and Frank Lapidus. It's, I'm We're excited. Have a great time. That's gonna be fun. Charles Woodmore too is gonna be popping up. So like, there's there's a lot, of, and like Locke is gonna have the great moment where like, uh, I think it's gonna be next week where Charlotte is sitting around with everybody and Locke is just like sort of like holding Lord of the Flies court. Like, it's so weird. Uh, so there, there's definitely some stuff that I'm really, really eager to get into. Um, it is just like a little strange to go from that flash forward momentum now to flashbacks. But I think the thing that will be exciting about it is we can finally really sink our teeth into some characters that we haven't had a chance to talk through. Um, yeah. that is really, really, uh, electrifying for me as we are, uh, now, Fully embarking into season four. Really, really fun stuff. Yeah, well, it's, it's always been a great start so far. I can't believe it. only 10 episodes, Josh, until we cover the finale. So Is that we are right? just. Jeez, wow. It's, it's fast. Episodes 12 through 14 are There's No Place Like Home. You know what? Right now, I'm not mad about that. I kind of love that. I think that's, uh, I think that's going to be fun. I think that's going to be great. All right. So send us your feedback for that episode down the hatch at post show recaps.com you can also tweet at us at post show recaps at ron howard at a mike bloom type you can talk to us in the discord if you are a member of the post show recaps patreon at the discord level patreon.com slash post show recaps lots of lost chatter happening in the discord you want to find your people come to the discord we're your people we're there we're hanging out we're having a great great time also having a great time uh mike bloom with um with the bloom files uh, well, mike and angela you. Have launched the Bloom Files, their X Files rewatch slash first watch podcast, in which Mike and Angela Bloom are going through. They're doing like a nice little tour of the X Files, tour of the X Files. Not a full watch, but a a, a large swath of the show. Uh, really exciting. Uh, great feedback so far. I hope you guys are having fun with it, Mike. We really are, and we're going to start at the very beginning. Uh, we're doing our first episode recap this coming Sunday of The Pilot, which uh, spoiler alert, I actually do feel like is an incredibly good pilot, uh, despite the reservations against pilots in general. It really got me hooked on the X-Files immediately, and so we go through it all, um, myself and Angela, and yeah, if you listen to our preview podcast, if you haven't yet, we basically go into the conceit of the show, our own respective experiences or lack thereof with it, but it's been a very fun time so far, and I've been so excited about the feedback from X-Files fans, people who haven't gotten involved, to those that religiously watched it back in the 90s. We're happy to have you all aboard to either engage with it or re-engage with it. So check it out. The Bloom Files is coming to you every Sunday. We're starting with the pilot, which you can watch on Hulu, which is also where Lost is for those of us in the U.S. So you don't have to go very far to check out your freaky deaky sci-fi shows and their post-show recaps counterparts. Yeah, so many things happening on post-show recaps, whether it's the Bloom Files or Down the Hatch. We've also got WandaVision coverage. We've got a long time to go. Our Star Wars podcast with lots of ridiculous things happening over there. Hang in there. Our Avatar, The Last Airbender podcast. Jess Lee and Rob Sesternino are talking The Stand. 
Mike. Uh, there's Final mm-hmm. Fantasy VII podcasting happening as well, where Brooklyn Zed and I are playing through the game their first time, my thousandth, uh, and we're going through the plot. It's very, very, very fun. So uh, if you're bored, we got you. We got you covered. You and I and the aforementioned Angela Bloom, as well as Emily Fox, finally completed our journey into Middle Earth. Uh, if you're a patron of Posher Recaps on Posher Recaps Theater, we did a big sort of like feedback show pontificating on the Lord of the Rings franchise, talking about what's to come with uh, the big show, just sort of general shenanigans about things. So that was an extremely fun way to start off 2021. And so I highly encourage people to check that out for a nice little, you know, uh, end of the book as it were, about all the 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 various vast amounts of Middle Earth watching we did over the course of the first month of 2021. Just an outstanding amount of content. It's really just crazy. So if uh, any of that sounds fun to you, just consider supporting the show. You know, patreon.com slash recaps. It's a great time. Huge community. Really, really fun. We play video games. Uh, it's great stuff. Everything's not, happening. Not we're bi- least via, via Domus, yeah, unfortunately. We're, we're building video games. It's a crazy, crazy, crazy time. Uh, so consider joining patreon.com slash Posha Recaps. We'll be back next week with Confirmed Dead talking about the Freighter Folk. Until next time, everybody, take care. Bye-bye! Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.